Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. He was interrupted by a phone call from a Johnny Fontaine, bubbling with high spirits. The picture had been shot, the rushes, whatever the hell they were, Hagen thought, were fabulous. He was sending the Don a present for Christmas that would knock his eyes out. He'd bring it himself, but there were some little things to be done in the movie. He would have to stay out on the coast. Hagen tried to conceal his impatience. Johnny Fontaine's charm had always been lost on him, but his interest was aroused. What is it? Johnny Fontaine chuckled and said, I can't tell. That's the best part of a Christmas present. Hagen immediately lost all interest and finally managed, politely, to hang up. Ten minutes later, his secretary told him that Connie Corleone was on the phone and wanted to speak to him. Hagen sighed. As a young girl, Connie had been nice. As a married woman, she was a nuisance. She made complaints about her husband. She kept going home to visit her mother for two or three days. And Carlo Rizzi was turning out to be a real loser. He had been fixed up with a nice little business and was running it into the ground. He was also drinking, whoring around, gambling, and beating his wife up occasionally. Connie hadn't told her family about that, but she had told Hagen. He wondered what new tale of woe she had for him now. But the Christmas spirit seemed to have cheered her up. She just wanted to ask Hagen what her father would really like for Christmas. And Sonny, and Fred, and Mike. She already knew what she would get her mother. Hagen made some suggestions, all of which she rejected as silly. Finally, she let him go. When the phone rang again, Hagen threw his papers back into the basket. The hell with it, he'd leave. It never occurred to him to refuse to take the call, however. When his secretary told him it was Michael Corleone, he picked up the phone with pleasure. He'd always liked Mike. Tom, I'm driving down to the city with Kay tomorrow. There's something important I want to tell the old man before Christmas. Will he be home tomorrow night? Sure. He's not going out of town until after Christmas. Anything I can do for you? Michael was as close-mouthed as his father. No. I guess I'll see you Christmas. Everybody's going to be out at Long Beach, right? Right. He was amused when Mike hung up on him without any small talk. He told his secretary to call his wife and tell her he would be home a little late, but to have some supper for him. Outside the building, he walked briskly downtown toward Macy's. Someone stepped in his way. To his surprise, he saw it was Salazzo. Salazzo took him by the arm and said quietly, Don't be frightened. I just want to talk to you. A car parked at the curb suddenly had its door open. Salazzo said urgently, Get in. I want to talk to you. Hagen pulled his arm loose. He was still not alarmed, just irritated. I haven't got time. At that moment, two men came up behind him. Hagen felt a sudden weakness in his legs. Salazzo said softly, Get in the car. If I wanted to kill you, you'd be dead now. Trust me. Without a shred of trust, Hagen got into the car. Michael Corleone had lied to Hagen. He was already in New York, and he had called from a room in the Hotel Pennsylvania, less than ten blocks away. When he hung up the phone, Kay Adams put out her cigarette. Mike, what a good fibber you are. Michael sat down beside her on the bed. All for you, honey. If I told my family we were in town, we'd have to go there right away. Then we couldn't go out to dinner, we couldn't go to the theater, and we couldn't sleep together tonight. Not in my father's house, not when we're not married. He put his arms around her and kissed her gently on the lips. Her mouth was sweet, and he gently pulled her down on the bed. She closed her eyes, waiting for him to make love to her, and Michael felt an enormous happiness. He had spent the war years fighting in the Pacific, and on those bloody islands he had dreamed of a girl like Kay Adams, of a beauty like hers, a fair and fragile body, milky-skinned and electrified by passion. She opened her eyes and then pulled his head down to kiss him. They made love until it was time for dinner and the theater. 
After dinner, they walked past the brightly lit department stores full of holiday shoppers, and Michael said to her, What shall I get you for Christmas? She pressed against him. Just you. Do you think your father will approve of me? That's not really the question. Will your parents approve of me? Kay shrugged. I don't care. I even thought of changing my name, legally. But if something happened, that wouldn't really help. You sure you want to be a Corleone? He said it only half-jokingly. Yes. She said without smiling. They pressed against each other. They had decided to get married during Christmas week, a quiet civil ceremony at City Hall with just two friends as witnesses. But Michael had insisted he must tell his father. He had explained that his father would not object in any way as long as it was not done in secrecy. Kay was doubtful. She said she could not tell her parents until after the marriage. Of course they'll think I'm pregnant. Michael grinned. So will my parents. What neither of them mentioned was the fact that Michael would have to cut his close ties with his family. They both understood that Michael had already done so to some extent, and yet they both felt guilty about this fact. They planned to finish college, seeing each other weekends and living together during summer vacations. It seemed like a happy life. The play was a musical called Carousel, and its sentimental story of a braggart thief made them smile at each other with amusement. When they came out of the theater, it had turned cold. Kay snuggled up to him. After we're married, will you beat me and then steal a star for a present? Michael laughed. I'm going to be a mathematics professor. Do you want something to eat before we go to the hotel? Kay shook her head. She looked up at him meaningfully. As always, he was touched by her eagerness to make love. He smiled down at her, and they kissed in the cold street. Michael felt hungry, and he decided to order sandwiches sent up to the room. In the hotel lobby, Michael pushed Kay toward the newsstand. Get the papers while I get the key. He had to wait in a small line. The hotel was still short of help despite the end of the war. Michael got his room key and looked around impatiently for Kay. She was standing by the newsstand, staring down at a newspaper she held in her hand. He walked toward her. She looked up at him. Her eyes were filled with tears. Oh, Mike. Oh, Mike. He took the paper from her hands. The first thing he saw was a photo of his father lying in the street, his head in a pool of blood. A man was sitting on the curb, weeping like a child. It was his brother, Freddy. Michael Corleone felt his body turning to ice. There was no grief, no fear, just cold rage. He said to Kay, Go up to the room. But he had to take her by the arm and lead her into the elevator. They rode up together in silence. In their room, Michael sat down on the bed and opened the paper. The headline said, Vito Corleone shot, alleged racket chief, critically wounded, operated on under heavy police guard, bloody mob war feared. Michael felt the weakness in his legs. He's not dead. The bastards didn't kill him. He read the story again. His father had been shot at five in the afternoon. That meant that while he had been making love to Kay, having dinner, enjoying the theater, his father was near death. Michael felt sick with guilt. Shall we go down to the hospital now? Michael shook his head. Let me call the house first. The people who did this are crazy. And now that the old man's still alive, they'll be desperate. Who the hell knows what they'll pull next? Both phones in the Long Beach house were busy, and it was almost 20 minutes before Michael could get through. He heard Sonny's voice saying, Yeah? Sonny, it's me. He could hear the relief in Sonny's voice. Jesus, kid. You had us worried. Where the hell are you? I've sent people to that hick town of yours to see what happened. How's the old man? How bad is he hurt? Pretty bad. They shot him five times, but he's tough. Sonny's voice was proud. The doctor said he'll pull through. Listen, kid, I'm busy. I can't talk. Where are you? In New York. Didn't Tom tell you I was coming down? They've snatched Tom. That's why I was worried about you. 
His wife is here. She don't know, and neither do the cops. I don't want them to know. The bastards who pulled this must be crazy. I want you to get out here right away and keep your mouth shut, okay? Okay. Do you know who did it? Sure. And as soon as Luca Brasi checks in, they're gonna be dead meat. We still have all the horses. I'll be out in an hour, in a cab. He hung up. The papers had been on the streets for over three hours. There must have been radio news reports. It was almost impossible that Luca hadn't heard the news. Thoughtfully, Michael pondered the question. Where was Luca Brasi? It was the same question that Hagen was asking himself at that moment. It was the same question that was worrying Sonny Corleone out in Long Beach. At a quarter to five that afternoon, Don Corleone had finished checking the papers the office manager of his olive oil company had prepared for him. He put on his jacket and wrapped his knuckles on his son Freddy's head to make him take his nose out of the afternoon newspaper. Tell Gatto to get the car from the lot. I'll be ready to go home in a few minutes. Freddy grunted. I'll have to get it myself. Paulie called in sick this morning. Got a cold again. Don Corleone looked thoughtful for a moment. That's the third time this month. I think maybe you'd better get a healthier fella for this job. Tell Tom. Fred protested. Paulie's a good kid. If he says he's sick, he's sick. I don't mind getting the car. He left the office. Don Corleone watched out the window as his son crossed Ninth Avenue to the parking lot. He stopped to call Hagen's office, but there was no answer. He called the house at Long Beach, but again, there was no answer. Irritated, he looked out the window. His car was parked at the curb in front of his building. Freddy was leaning against the fender, arms folded, watching the throng of Christmas shoppers. Don Corleone put on his jacket. The office manager helped him with his overcoat. Don Corleone grunted his thanks and went out the door and started down the two flights of steps. Out in the street, the early winter light was failing. Freddy leaned casually against the fender of the heavy Buick. When he saw his father come out of the building, Freddy went out into the street to the driver's side of the car and got in. Don Corleone was about to get in on the sidewalk side of the car when he hesitated and then turned back to the long, open fruit stand near the corner. This had been his habit lately. He loved the big out-of-season fruits, yellow peaches and oranges that glowed in their green boxes. The proprietor sprang to serve him. Don Corleone did not handle the fruit. He pointed. The fruit man disputed his decisions only once to show him that one of his choices had a rotten underside. Don Corleone took the paper bag in his left hand and paid the man with a five-dollar bill. He took his change, and as he turned to go back to the waiting car, two men stepped from around the corner. Don Corleone knew immediately what was to happen. The two men wore black overcoats and black hats pulled low to prevent identification by witnesses. They had not expected Don Corleone's alert reaction. He dropped the bag of fruit and darted toward the parked car with startling quickness for a man of his bulk. At the same time, he shouted, Fredo! Fredo! It was only then that the two men drew their guns and fired. The first bullet caught Don Corleone in the back. He felt the hammer shock of its impact, but made his body move toward the car. The next two bullets hit him in the buttocks and sent him sprawling in the middle of the street. Meanwhile, the two gunmen, careful not to slip on the rolling fruit, started to follow in order to finish him off. At that moment, perhaps no more than five seconds after the Don's call to his son, Federico Corleone appeared out of his car, looming over it. The gunman fired two more hasty shots at the Don lying in the gutter. One hit him in the fleshy part of his arm, and the second hit him in the calf of his right leg. Though these wounds were the least serious, they bled profusely, forming small pools of blood beside his body. But by this time, Don Corleone had lost consciousness. Freddy had heard his father shout, calling him by his childhood name. 
and then he had heard the first two loud reports. By the time he got out of the car, he was in shock. He had not even drawn his gun. The two assassins could easily have shot him down, but they too panicked. They must have known the son was armed, and besides, too much time had passed. They disappeared around the corner, leaving Freddy alone in the street with his father's bleeding body. Many of the people thronging the avenue had flung themselves into doorways or on the ground. Others had huddled together in small groups. Freddy still had not drawn his weapon. He seemed stunned. He stared down at his father's body lying face down on the tarred street, lying now in what seemed to him a blackish lake of blood. Freddy went into physical shock. People eddied out again, and someone, seeing him start to sag, led him to the curbstone and made him sit down on it. A crowd gathered around Don Corleone's body, a circle that shattered when the first police car sirened a path through them. Directly behind the police was the Daily News radio car, and even before it stopped, a photographer jumped out to snap pictures of the bleeding Don Corleone. A few moments later, an ambulance arrived. The photographer turned his attention to Freddy Corleone, who was now weeping openly, and this was a curiously comical sight because of his tough, cupid-featured face, heavy nose, and thick mouth smeared with snot. Detectives were spreading through the crowd, and more police cars were coming up. One detective knelt beside Freddy, questioning him, but Freddy was too deep in shock to answer. The detective reached inside Freddy's coat and lifted his wallet. He looked at the identification inside and whistled to his partner. In just a few seconds, Freddy had been cut off from the crowd by a flock of plainclothesmen. The first detective found Freddy's gun in its shoulder holster and took it. Then they lifted Freddy off his feet and shoved him into an unmarked car. As that car pulled away, it was followed by the Daily News radio car. The photographer was still snapping pictures of everybody and everything. In the half hour after the shooting of his father, Sonny Corleone received five phone calls in rapid succession. The first was from Detective John Phillips, who was on the family payroll and had been in the lead car of plain clothesmen at the scene of the shooting. First thing he said to Sonny over the phone was, Do you recognize my voice? Yeah. He was fresh from a nap, called to the phone by his wife. Phillips said quickly, without preamble, Somebody shot your father outside his place 15 minutes ago. He's alive, but hurt, bad. They've taken him to French Hospital. They got your brother Freddy down at the Chelsea precinct. You better get him a doctor when they turn him loose. I'm going down to the hospital now to help question your old man if he can talk. I'll keep you posted. Across the table, Sonny's wife, Sandra, noticed that her husband's face had gone red with flushing blood. His eyes were glazed over. She whispered, What's the matter? He waved at her impatiently to shut up, swung his body away so that his back was toward her and said into the phone, You sure he's alive? Yeah, I'm sure. A lot of blood, but I think maybe he's not as bad as he looks. Thanks. Be home tomorrow morning, eight sharp. You got a grand coming. Sonny cradled the phone. He forced himself to sit still. He knew that his greatest weakness was his anger, and this was one time when anger could be fatal. The first thing to do was get Tom Hagen, but before he could pick up the phone, it rang. The call was from the bookmaker, licensed by the family to operate in the district of the Don's office. The bookmaker had called to tell him that the Don had been killed, shot dead in the street. After a few questions to make sure that the bookmaker's informant had not been close to the body, Sonny dismissed the information as incorrect. Phillips' dope would be more accurate. The phone rang almost immediately a third time. It was a reporter from the Daily News. As soon as he identified himself, Sonny Corleone hung up. He dialed Hagen's house and asked Hagen's wife, did Tom come home yet? She said no, that he was not due for another 20 minutes, but she expected him home for supper. Have him call me. 
He tried to think things out. He tried to imagine how his father would react in a like situation. He had known immediately that this was an attack by Salazzo, but Salazzo would never have dared to eliminate so high-ranking a leader as the Don unless he was backed by other powerful people. The phone, ringing for the fourth time, interrupted his thoughts. The voice on the other end was very soft, very gentle. Santino Corleone? Yeah. We have Tom Hagen. In about three hours, he'll be released with our proposition. Don't do anything rash until you've heard what he has to say. Could only cause a lot of trouble. What's done is done. Everybody has to be sensible now. Don't lose that famous temper of yours. The voice was slightly mocking. Sonny couldn't be sure, but it sounded like Salazzo. He made his voice sound muted, depressed. Oh, wait. He heard the receiver on the other end click. He looked at his heavy, gold-banded wristwatch and noted the exact time of the call and jotted it down on the tablecloth. He sat at the kitchen table, frowning. His wife asked, Sonny, what is it? They shot the old man. He saw the shock on her face. Don't worry, he's not dead, and nothing else is going to happen. He did not tell her about Hagen. And then the phone rang for the fifth time. It was Clemenza. The fat man's voice came wheezing over the phone in grunt-like gasps. You hear about your father? Yeah, but he's not dead. There was a long pause over the phone, and then Clemenza's voice came, packed with emotion. Thank God, thank God. You sure? I got word he was dead in the street. He's alive. He was listening intently to every intonation in Clemenza's voice. The emotion had seemed genuine, but it was part of the fat man's profession to be a good actor. You will have to carry the ball, Sonny. What do you want me to do? Get over to my father's house. Bring Polly Gatto. That's all? Don't you want me to send some people to the hospital in your place? No, I just want you and Polly Gatto. There was a long pause. Clemenza was getting the message. To make it a little more natural, Sonny asked, Where the hell was Polly anyway? What the hell was he doing? There was no longer any wheezing on the other end of the line. Clemenza's voice was guarded. Paulie was sick. He had a cold, so he stayed home. He's been a little sick all winter. Sonny was instantly alert. How many times did he stay home the last couple of months? Maybe three or four times. I always asked Freddy if he wanted another guy, but he said no. There's been no cause. Last ten years, things been smooth, you know. Yeah. I'll see you at my father's house. Be sure you bring Paulie. Pick him up on your way over. I don't care how sick he is. You got that? He slammed down the phone without waiting for an answer. His wife was weeping silently. He stared at her for a moment, then said in a harsh voice, Any of our people call, tell them to get me in my father's house on a special phone. Anybody else call, you don't know nothing. If Tom's wife calls, tell her that Tom won't be home for a while. He's on business. He pondered for a moment. A couple of our people will come to stay here. He saw her look of fright. You don't have to be scared. I just want them here. Do whatever they tell you to do. If you want to talk to me, get me on Pop's special phone, but don't call me unless it's really important. And don't worry. He went out of the house. Darkness had fallen, and the December wind whipped through them all. Sonny had no fear about stepping out into the night. All eight houses were owned by Don Corleone. At the mouth of the mall, the two houses on either side were rented by family retainers with their own families and star boarders, single men who lived in the basement apartments. Of the remaining six houses that formed the rest of the half-circle, one was inhabited by Tom Hagen and his family, his own, and the smallest and least ostentatious, by the Don himself. The other three houses were given rent-free to retired friends of the Don, with the understanding that they would be vacated whenever he requested. The harmless-looking mall was an impregnable fortress. 
All eight houses were equipped with floodlights, which bathed the grounds around them and made them all impossible to lurk in. Sonny went across the street to his father's house and let himself inside with his own key. Ma, where are you? His mother came out of the kitchen. Behind her rose the smell of frying peppers. Before she could say anything, Sonny took her by the arm and made her sit down. I just got a call. Now don't get worried. Pop's in the hospital. He's hurt. Get dressed and get ready to get down there. I'll have a car and a driver for you in a little while, okay? His mother looked at him steadily for a moment and then asked in Italian, Have they shot him? Sonny nodded. His mother bowed her head for a moment. Then she went back into the kitchen. Sonny followed her. He watched her turn off the gas under the pan full of peppers and then go out and up to the bedroom. He took peppers from the pan and bread from the basket on the table and made a sloppy sandwich with hot olive oil dripping from his fingers. He went into the huge corner room that was his father's office and took the special phone from a locked cabinet box. The phone had been especially installed and was listed under a phony name and a phony address. The first person he called was Luca Brasi. There was no answer. Then he called the safety valve Capo Regimi in Brooklyn, a man of unquestioned loyalty to the Don. This man's name was Tessio. Sonny told him what had happened and what he wanted. Tessio was to recruit 50 absolutely reliable men. He was to send guards to the hospital. He was to send men out to Long Beach to work there. Tessio asked, Did they get Clemenza, too? I don't want to use Clemenza's people right now. Tessio understood immediately. There was a pause, and then he said, Excuse me, Sonny. I say this as your father would say it. Don't move too fast. I can't believe Clemenza would betray us. Thanks. I don't think so, but I have to be careful, right? Right. Another thing. My kid brother Mike goes to college in Hanover, New Hampshire. Get some people we know in Boston to go up and get them and bring them down here to the house until this blows over. I'll call them up so he'll expect them. Again, I'm just playing the percentages just to make sure. Okay. I'll be over your father's house as soon as I get things rolling. Okay? You know my boys, right? Yeah. He hung up. He went over to a small wall safe and unlocked it. From it, he took an indexed book bound in blue leather. He opened it to the T's until he found the entry he was looking for. It read, Ray Farrell, $5,000, Christmas Eve. This was followed by a telephone number. Sonny dialed the number and said, Farrell? The man on the other end answered, Yes? This is Santino Corleone. I want you to do me a favor and I want you to do it right away. I want you to check two phone numbers and give me all the calls they got and all the calls they made for the last three months. He gave Farrell the number of Paulie Gatto's home and Clemenza's home. This is important. Get it to me before midnight, and you'll have an extra very Merry Christmas. Before he settled back to think things out, he gave Luca Brasi's number one more call. Again, there was no answer. This worried him, but he put it out of his mind. Luca would come to the house as soon as he heard the news. Sonny leaned back in the swivel chair. In an hour, the house would be swarming with family people, and he would have to tell them all what to do. And now that he finally had time to think, he realized how serious the situation was. It was the first challenge to the Corleone family and their power in ten years. There was no doubt that Salazzo was behind it, but he would never have dared attempt such a stroke unless he had support from at least one of the five great New York families. And that support must have come from the Tatalias, which meant a full-scale war or an immediate settlement on Salazzo's terms. Sonny smiled grimly. The wily Turk had planned well, but he had been unlucky. The old man was alive, and so it was war. With Luca Brasi and the resources of the Corleone family, 
there could be but one outcome. But again, the nagging worry. Where was Luca Brasi? Chapter 3 Counting the driver, there were four men in the car with Hagen. They put him in the back seat, in the middle of the two men who had come up behind him in the street. Salazzo sat up front. The man on Hagen's right reached over across his body and tilted Hagen's hat over his eyes so that he could not see. Don't even move your pinky. It was a short ride, not more than 20 minutes. And when they got out of the car, Hagen could not recognize the neighborhood because darkness had fallen. They led him into a basement apartment and made him sit on a straight-backed kitchen chair. Salazzo sat across the kitchen table from him. His dark face had a peculiarly vulturine look. I don't want you to be afraid. I know you're not in the muscle end of the family. I want you to help the Corleones, and I want you to help me. Hagen's hands were shaking as he put a cigarette in his mouth. One of the men brought a bottle of rye to the table and gave him a slug of it in a china coffee cup. Hagen drank the fiery liquid gratefully, steadied his hands, and took the weakness out of his legs. Your boss is dead. He paused, surprised at the tears that sprang to Hagen's eyes. Then he went on. We got him outside his office, in the street. As soon as I got the word, I picked you up. You have to make the peace between me and Sonny. Hagen didn't answer. He was surprised at his own grief and the feeling of desolation mixed with his fear of death. Salazzo was speaking again. Sonny was hot for my deal, right? You know it's a smart thing to do, too. Narcotics is a coming thing. There's so much money in it that everybody can get rich just in a couple of years. The Don was an old mustache Pete. His day was over, but he didn't know it. Now he's dead. Nothing can bring him back. I'm ready to make a new deal. I want you to talk Sonny into taking it. Hagen said, You haven't got a chance. Sonny will come after you with everything he's got. That's going to be his first reaction. You have to talk some sense to him. The Tatalia family stands behind me with all their people. The other New York families will go along with anything that will stop a full-scale war between us. Our war has to hurt them and their businesses. If Sonny goes along with the deal, the other families in the country will consider it none of their affair, even a Don's oldest friends. Hagen stared down at his hands, not answering. Salazzo went on persuasively. The Don was slipping. In the old days, I could never have gotten to him. The other families distrust him because he made you his consigliere, and you're not even Italian, much less Sicilian. If it goes to all-out war, the Corleone family will be smashed, and everybody loses, me included. I need the family political contacts more than I need the money, even. So talk to Sonny. Talk to the capo regimes. You'll save a lot of bloodshed. Hagen held out his china cup for more whiskey. I'll try. But Sonny's strong-headed. And even Sonny won't be able to call off Luca. You have to worry about Luca. I'll have to worry about Luca if I go for your deal. I'll take care of Luca. You take care of Sonny and the other two kids. Listen, you can tell them that Freddy would have gotten it today with his old man. But my people had strict orders not to gun him. I didn't want any more hard feelings than necessary. You can tell him that. Freddy's alive because of me. Finally, Hagen's mind was working. For the first time, he really believed that Salazzo did not mean to kill him or hold him as a hostage. The sudden relief from fear that flooded his body made him flush with shame. Salazzo watched him with a quiet, understanding smile. Hagen began to think things out. If he did not agree to argue Salazzo's case, he might be killed. But then he realized that Salazzo expected him only to present it, and present it properly. 
as he was bound to do as a responsible consigliere. And now, thinking about it, he also realized that Salazzo was right. An unlimited war between the Tatalias and the Corleones must be avoided at all costs. The Corleones must bury their dead and forget, make a deal. And then, when the time was right, they could move against Salazzo. But glancing up, he realized that Salazzo knew exactly what he was thinking. The Turk was smiling, and then it struck Hagen. What had happened to Luca Brasi that Salazzo was so unconcerned? Had Luca made a deal? He remembered that on the night Don Corleone had refused Salazzo, Luca had been summoned into the office for a private conference with the Don. But now was not the time to worry about such details. He had to get back to the safety of the Corleone family fortress in Long Beach. I'll do my best. I believe you're right. It's even what the Don would want us to do. Salazzo nodded gravely. I don't like bloodshed. I'm a businessman, and blood costs too much money. At that moment, the phone rang and one of the men sitting behind Hagen went to answer it. He listened and then said curtly, Okay, I'll tell him. He hung up the phone, went to Salazzo's side, and whispered in the Turk's ear. Hagen saw Salazzo's face go pale, his eyes glitter with rage. He himself felt a thrill of fear. Salazzo was looking at him speculatively, and suddenly Hagen knew that he was no longer going to be set free, that something had happened that might mean his death. Salazzo said, the old man is still alive. Five bullets in a Sicilian hide, and he's still alive. He gave a fatalistic shrug. Bad luck. Bad luck for me. Bad luck for you. Chapter 4 When Michael Corleone arrived at his father's house in Long Beach, he found the narrow entrance mouth of the mall blocked off with a linked chain. The mall itself was bright with the floodlights of all eight houses, outlining at least ten cars parked along the curving cement walk. Two men he didn't know were leaning against the chain. One of them asked in a Brooklyn accent, Who are you? He told them. Another man came out of the nearest house and peered at his face. That's the Don's kid, he said. I'll bring him inside. Mike followed this man to his father's house, where two men at the door let him and his escort pass inside. The house seemed to be full of men he didn't know, until he went into the living room. There, Michael saw Tom Hagen's wife, Teresa, sitting stiffly on the sofa, smoking a cigarette. On the coffee table in front of her was a glass of whiskey. On the other side of the sofa sat the bulky Clemenza. The capo Regimi's face was impassive, but he was sweating, and the cigar in his hand glistened slickly black with his saliva. Clemenza came to wring his hand in a consoling way, muttering, Your mother's at the hospital with your father. He's going to be all right. Pauly Gatto stood up to shake hands. Michael looked at him curiously. He knew Pauly was his father's bodyguard, but did not know that Pauly had stayed home sick that day. But he sensed tension in the thin, dark face. He knew Gatto's reputation as an up-and-coming man, a very quick man who knew how to get delicate jobs done without complications, and today he had failed in his duty. He noticed several other men in the corners of the room, but he did not recognize them. They were not of Clemenza's people. Michael put these facts together and understood. Clemenza and Gatto were suspect. Thinking that Pauly had been at the scene, he asked the ferret-faced young man, How's Freddy? Is he okay? Doctor gave him a shot. He's sleeping. Michael went to Hagen's wife and bent down to kiss her cheek. They had always liked each other. He whispered, Don't worry. Tom will be okay. Have you talked to Sonny yet? Teresa clung to him for a moment and shook her head. She was a delicate, very pretty woman, more American than Italian, and very scared. He took her hand and lifted her off the sofa. Then he led her into his father's corner room office. 
Sonny was sprawled out in his chair behind the desk, holding a yellow pad in one hand and a pencil in the other. The only other man in the room with him was the capo regime, Tesio, whom Michael recognized and immediately realized that it must be his men who were in the house and forming the new palace guard. He, too, had a pencil and pad in his hands. When Sonny saw them, he came from behind the desk and took Hagen's wife in his arms. Don't worry, Teresa. Tom's okay. They just want to give him the proposition. They said they'd turn him loose. He's not on the operating end. He's just our lawyer. There's no reason for anybody to do him harm. He released Teresa, and then, to Michael's surprise, he too got a hug and a kiss on the cheek. He pushed Sonny away and said, grinning, After I get used to you beating me up, I gotta put up with this. They had often fought when they were younger. Sonny shrugged. Listen, kid, I was worried when I couldn't get a hold of you in that hick town. Not that I gave a crap if they knocked you off, but I didn't like the idea of bringing a news to the old lady. I had to tell her about Pop. How'd she take it? Good. She's been through it before. Me too. You were too young to know about it, and then things got pretty smooth while you were growing up. He paused and then said, She's down at the hospital with the old man. He's got to pull through. How about us going down? Sonny shook his head and said dryly, I can't leave this house until it's all over. The phone rang. Sonny picked it up and listened intently. While he was listening, Michael sauntered over to the desk and glanced down at the yellow pad Sonny had been writing on. There was a list of seven names. The first three were Salazzo, Philip Tatalia, and John Tatalia. It struck Michael with full force that he had interrupted Sonny and Tesio as they were making up a list of men to be killed. When Sonny hung up the phone, he said to Teresa Hagen and Michael, Can you two wait outside? I got some business with Tesio we have to finish. Was that call about Tom? She said it almost truculently, but she was weeping with fright. Sonny put his arm around her and led her to the door. I swear he's going to be okay. Wait in the living room. I'll come out as soon as I hear something. He shut the door behind her. Michael had sat down in one of the big leather armchairs. Sonny gave him a quick, sharp look and then went to sit down behind the desk. You hang around me, Mike. You're going to hear things you don't want to hear. Michael lit a cigarette. I can help out. No, you can't. The old man would be sore as hell if I let you get mixed up in this. Michael stood up and yelled, You lousy bastard. He's my father. I'm not supposed to help him. I can help. I don't have to go out and kill people, but I can help. Stop treating me like, like a kid brother. I was in the war. I, I got shot, remember? I killed some Japs. What the hell do you think I'll do when you knock somebody off? Faint? Sonny grinned at him. Pretty soon you want me to put up my dukes. Okay, stick around. You can handle the phone. He turned to Tesio. That call I just got gave me dope we needed. He turned to Michael. Somebody had to finger the old man. It could have been Clemenza, it could have been Poligato, who was very conveniently sick today. I know the answer now. Let's see how smart you are, Mike. You're the college boy. Who sold out to Salazzo? Michael sat down again and relaxed back into the leather armchair. He thought everything over very carefully. Clemenza was a capo regime in the Corleone family structure. Don Corleone had made him a millionaire, and they had been intimate friends for over 20 years. He held one of the most powerful posts in the organization. What could Clemenza gain for betraying his Don? More money? He was rich enough, but then men are always greedy. More power? Revenge for some fancied insult or slight? That Hagen had been made the consigliere? Or perhaps a businessman's conviction that Salazzo would win out? No, it was impossible for Clemenza to be a traitor. And then, Michael thought sadly, it was only impossible because he didn't want Clemenza to die. The fat man had always brought him gifts when he was growing up, 
had sometimes taken him on outings when the Don had been too busy, he could not believe that Clemenza was guilty of treachery. But on the other hand, Salazzo would want Clemenza in his pocket more than any other man in the Corleone family. Michael thought about Pauli Gatto. Pauli, as yet, had not become rich. He was well thought of, his rise in the organization was certain, but he would have to put in his time like everybody else. Also, he would have wilder dreams of power, as the young always do. It had to be Pauli. And then Michael remembered that in the sixth grade, he and Pauli had been in the same class in school, and he didn't want it to be Pauli either. He shook his head. Neither one of them. But he said it only because Sonny had said he had the answer. If it had been a vote, he would have voted Pauli guilty. Sonny was smiling at him. Don't worry, Clemenza is okay. It's Pauli. Michael could see that Tessio was relieved. As a fellow capo regime, his sympathy would be with Clemenza. Also, the present situation was not so serious if treachery did not reach so high. Tessio said cautiously, Then I can send my people home tomorrow? The day after tomorrow. I don't want anybody to know about this until then. Listen, I want to talk some family business with my brother, personal. Wait out in the living room, eh? We can finish our list later. You and Clemenza will work together on it. Sure. Tessio went out. How do you know for sure it's Pauli? We have people in the telephone company, and they track down all of Pauli's phone calls, in and out. Clemenza's, too. On the three days Pauli was sick this month, he got a call from a street booth across from the old man's building. Today, too. They were checking to see if Pauli was coming down or somebody was being sent down to take his place. Or for some other reason. It doesn't matter. Sonny shrugged. Thank God it was Pauli. We'll need Clemenza bad. Is it going to be an all-out war? Sonny's eyes were hard. That's how I'm going to play it as soon as Tom checks in. Until the old man tells me different. So why don't you wait until the old man can tell you? Sonny looked at him curiously. How the hell did you win those combat medals? We are under the gun, man. We got to fight. I'm just afraid they won't let Tom go. Michael was surprised at this. Why not? Again, Sonny's voice was patient. They snatched Tom because they figured the old man was finished and they could make a deal with me and Tom would be the sit-down guy in the preliminary stages, carry the proposition. Now with the old man alive, they know I can't make a deal. So Tom's no good to them. They can turn him loose or dump him, depending how Salazzo feels. If they dump him, it would be just to show us they really mean business, trying to bulldoze us. What made Salazzo think he could get a deal with you? Sonny flushed and he didn't answer for a moment. Then he said... We had a meeting a few months ago. Salazzo came to us with a proposition on drugs. The old man turned him down, but during the meeting I shot off my mouth a little. I showed I wanted the deal, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do. If there's one thing the old man hammered into me, it's never to do a thing like that, to let other people know there's a split of opinion in the family. So Salazzo figures he gets rid of the old man, I have to go in with him on the drugs. With the old man gone, the family power is cut at least in half. I would be fighting for my life anyway to keep all the businesses the old man got together. Drugs are the common thing. We should get into And his knocking off the old man is purely business, nothing personal. As a matter of business, I would go in with him. Of course, he would never let me get too close. He'd make sure I'd never get a clean shot at him, just in case. But he also knows that once I accepted the deal, the other families would never let me start a war a couple of years later just for revenge. Also, the Tatalia family is behind him. If they had gotten the old man, what would you have done? Salazzo is dead meat. I don't care what it costs. I don't care if we have to fight all the five families in New York. 
The Tatalia family's gonna be wiped out. I don't care if we all go down together. That's not how Pop would have played it. Sonny made a violent gesture. I know I'm not the man he was, but I'll tell you this, and he'll tell you too. When it comes to real action, I can operate as good as anybody, short range. Salazzo knows that, and so do Clemenza and Tessio. I made my bones when I was 19, the last time the family had a war, and I was a big help to the old man, so I'm not worried now. And our family has all the horses in a deal like this. I just wish we could get contact with Luca. Is Luca that tough, like they say? Is he that good? Sonny nodded. He's in a class by himself. I'm going to send him after the three Tatalias. I'll get Salazzo myself. Michael shifted uneasily in his chair. He looked at his older brother. He remembered Sonny as being sometimes casually brutal, but essentially warm-hearted. A nice guy. It seemed unnatural to hear him talking this way. It was chilling to see the list of names he had scribbled down, men to be executed, as if he were some newly crowned Roman emperor. He was glad that he was not truly part of all this, that now his father lived, he did not have to involve himself in vengeance. He'd help out, answering the phone, running errands and messages. Sonny and the old man could take care of themselves, especially with Luca behind them. At that moment, they heard a woman scream in the living room. Oh, Christ, Michael thought. It sounded like Tom's wife. He rushed to the door and opened it. Everybody in the living room was standing. And by the sofa, Tom Hagen was holding Teresa close to him, his face embarrassed. Teresa was weeping and sobbing, and Michael realized that the scream he had heard had been her calling out her husband's name with joy. As he watched, Tom Hagen disentangled himself from his wife's arms and lowered her back onto the sofa. He smiled at Michael grimly. Glad to see you, Mike. Really glad. He strode into the office without another look at his still-sobbing wife. He hadn't lived with the Corleone family ten years for nothing, Michael thought, with a queer flush of pride. Some of the old man had rubbed off on him, as it had on Sonny, and he thought, with surprise, even on himself. Chapter 5 It was nearly four o'clock in the morning as they all sat in the corner room office, Sonny, Michael, Tom Hagen, Clemenza, and Tessio. Teresa Hagen had been persuaded to go to her own home next door. Paulie Gatto was still waiting in the living room, not knowing that Tessio's men had been instructed not to let him leave or let him out of their sight. Tom Hagen relayed the deal Salazzo offered. He told how, after Salazzo had learned the Don still lived, it was obvious that he meant to kill Hagen. Hagen grinned. If I ever plead before the Supreme Court, I'll never plead better than I did with that goddamn Turk tonight. I told him I'd talk the family into the deal even though the Don was alive. I told him I could wrap you around my finger, Sonny, how we were buddies as kids. And don't get sore, but I let him get the idea that maybe you weren't too sorry about getting the old man's job, God forgive me. He smiled apologetically at Sonny, who made a gesture signifying that he understood that it was of no consequence. Michael, leaning back in his armchair with the phone at his right hand, studied both men. When Hagen had entered the room, Sonny had come rushing to embrace him. Michael realized with a faint twinge of jealousy that in many ways Sonny and Tom Hagen were closer than he himself could ever be to his own brother. Sonny said, Let's get down to business. We have to make plans. Take a look at this list me and Tessio made up. Tessio, give Clemenza your copy. Michael said, If we make plans, Freddy should be here. Freddy is no use to us. The doctor says he's in shock so bad he has to have complete rest. I don't understand that. Freddy was always a pretty tough guy. I guess seeing the old man gunned down was hard on him. He always thought the Don was God. It wasn't like you and me, Mike. Okay, leave Freddy out. Leave him out of everything. Absolutely everything. Now, Sonny, until this is all over, I think you should stay in the house. I mean, never leave it. 
you're safe here. Don't underrate Salazzo. He's got to be a Pezzanavante, a real 90 caliber. Is the hospital covered? Sonny nodded. The cops have it locked in, and I got my people there visiting Pop all the time. What do you think of that list, Tom? Hagen frowned down at the list of names. Jesus Christ, Sonny, you're really taking this personal. The Don would consider it a purely business dispute. Salazzo is the key. Get rid of Salazzo and everything falls in line. You don't have to go after the Tatalias. Sonny looked at his two capo regime. Tessio shrugged. It's tricky. Clemenza didn't answer at all. Sonny said to Clemenza, One thing we can take care of without discussion. I don't want Paulie around here anymore. Make that first on your list. The fat capo regime nodded. What about Luca? Salazzo didn't seem worried about Luca. That worries me. If Luca sold us out, we're in real trouble. That's the first thing we have to know. Has anybody been able to get in touch with him? No. I've been calling him all night. Maybe he's shacked up. No, he never sleeps over with a broad. He always goes home when he's through. Mike, keep ringing his number until you get an answer. Michael dutifully picked up the phone and dialed. He could hear the phone ringing on the other end, but no one answered. Finally, he hung up. Keep trying every 15 minutes. Okay, Tom, you're the consigliere. How about some advice? What the hell do you think we should do? Hagen helped himself to the whiskey bottle on the desk. We negotiate with Salazzo until your father is in shape to take charge. We might even make a deal if we have to. When your father gets out of bed, he can settle the whole business without a fuss, and all the families will go along with him. You think I can't handle this guy, Salazzo? Tom Hagen looked him directly in the eye. Sonny, sure you can outfight him. The Corleone family has the power. You have Clemenza and Tessio here, and they can muster a thousand men if it comes to an all-out war. But at the end, there will be a shambles over the whole East Coast, and all the other families will blame the Corleones. We'll make a lot of enemies. And that's something your father never believed in. Michael, watching Sonny, thought he took this well. But Sonny said to Hagen, What if the old man dies? What do you advise then, consigliere? I know you won't do it, but I would advise you to make a real deal with Salazzo on the drugs. Without your father's political contacts and personal influence, the Corleone family loses half its strength. Without your father, the other New York families might wind up supporting the Tatalias and Salazzo just to make sure there isn't a long, destructive war. If your father dies, make the deal. Then wait and see. Sonny was white-faced with anger. That's easy for you to say. It's not your father they killed. I was as good a son to him as you or Mike, maybe better. I'm giving you a professional opinion. Personally, I want to kill all those bastards. The emotion in his voice shamed Sonny. Ah, Christ, Tom, I didn't mean it that way. But he had, really. Blood was blood, and nothing else was its equal. Sonny brooded for a moment as the others waited in embarrassed silence. Then he sighed. Okay. We'll sit tight until the old man can give us the lead. But, Tom, I want you to stay inside the mall, too. Don't take any chances. Mike, you be careful, though I don't think even Salazzo would bring personal family into the war. Everybody would be against them then. But be careful. Tessio, you hold your people in reserve, but have them nosing around the city. Clemenza, after you settle the Poligato thing, you move your men into the house and the mall to replace Tessio's people. Tessio, you keep your men at the hospital, though. Tom, start negotiation over the phone or by messenger with Salazzo and the Tatalias the first thing in the morning. Mike, tomorrow you take a couple of Clemenza's people and go to Luca's house and wait for him to show up or find out where the hell he is. The crazy bastard might be going after Salazzo right now if he's heard the news. I can't believe he'd ever go against his Don, no matter what the Turk offered him. Hagen said reluctantly, Maybe Mike shouldn't get mixed up in this so directly. Right. Forget that, Mike. Anyway, I need you on the phone here in the house. That's more important. 
Michael didn't say anything. He felt awkward, almost ashamed, and he noticed Clemenza and Tessio with faces so carefully impassive that he was sure that they were hiding their contempt. He picked up the phone and dialed Luca Brasi's number and kept the receiver to his ear as it rang and rang. Chapter 6 Peter Clemenza slept badly that night. In the morning, he got up early and made his own breakfast of a glass of grappa, a thick slice of Genoa salami with a chunk of fresh Italian bread that was still delivered to his door as in the old days. Then he drank a great plain china mug filled with hot coffee that had been lashed with anisette. But as he padded about the house in his old bathrobe and red felt slippers, he pondered on the day's work that lay ahead of him. Last night, Sonny Corleone had made it very clear that Pauli Gatto was to be taken care of immediately. It had to be today. Clemenza was troubled, not because Gatto had been his protege and had turned traitor. This did not reflect on the Capo Regime's judgment. After all, Pauli's background had been perfect. He came from a Sicilian family. He had grown up in the same neighborhood as the Corleone children, had indeed even gone to school with one of the sons. He had been brought up through each level in the proper manner. He had been tested and not found wanting. And then, after he had made his bones, he had received a good living from the family, a percentage of an east side book and a union payroll slot. Clemenza had not been unaware that Paul Gatto supplemented his income with freelance stick-ups, strictly against the family rules, but even this was a sign of the man's worth. The breaking of such regulations was considered a sign of high-spiritedness, like that shown by a fine racing horse fighting the reins. And Pauly had never caused trouble with his stick-ups. They had always been meticulously planned and carried out with a minimum of fuss and trouble, with no one ever getting hurt. A $3,000 Manhattan Garment Center payroll, a small Chinaware factory payroll in the slums of Brooklyn. After all, a young man could always use some extra pocket money. It was all in the pattern. Who could ever foretell that Pauly Gatto would turn traitor? What was troubling Peter Clemenza this morning was an administrative problem. The actual execution of Gatto was a cut-and-dried chore. The problem was, who should the Capo Regime bring up from the ranks to replace Gatto in the family? It was an important promotion, that to button man, one not to be handed out lightly. The man had to be tough, and he had to be smart. He had to be safe, not a person that would talk to the police if he got in trouble, one well saturated in the Sicilian's law of omerta, the law of silence. And then, what kind of a living would he receive for his new duties? Clemenza had several times spoken to the Don about better rewards for the all-important button man who was first in the front line when trouble arose, but the Don had put him off. If Pauli had been making more money, he might have been able to resist the blandishments of the wily Turk, Salazzo. Clemenza finally narrowed down the list of candidates to three men. The first was an enforcer who worked with the colored policy bankers in Harlem, a big, brawny brute of a man of great physical strength a man with a great deal of personal charm who could get along with people and yet, when necessary, make them go in fear of him. But Clemenza scratched him off the list after considering his name for a half hour. This man got along too well with the black people, which hinted at some flaw of character. Also, he would be too hard to replace in the position he now held. The second name Clemenza considered and almost settled on was a hard-working chap who served faithfully and well in the organization. This man was the collector of delinquent accounts for family-licensed Shylocks in Manhattan. He had started off as a bookmaker's runner, but he was not quite yet ready for such an important promotion. Finally, he settled on Rocco Lampone. Lampone had served a short but impressive apprenticeship in the family. 
During the war, he had been wounded in Africa and had been discharged in 1943. Because of the shortage of young men, Clemenza had taken him on, even though Lampone was partially incapacitated by his injuries and walked with a pronounced limp. Clemenza had used him as a black market contact in the garment center and with government employees controlling OPA food stamps. From that, Lampone had graduated to troubleshooter for the whole operation. What Clemenza liked about him was his good judgment. He knew that there was no percentage in being tough about something that would only cost a heavy fine or six months in jail, small prices to pay for the enormous profits earned. He had the good sense to know that it was not an area for heavy threats, but light ones. He kept the whole operation in a minor key, which was exactly what was needed. Clemenza felt the relief of a conscientious administrator who has solved a knotty personnel problem. Yes, it would be Rocco Lampone who would assist, for Clemenza planned to handle this job himself, not only to help a new, inexperienced man make his bones, but to settle a personal score with Pauli Gatto. Pauli had been his protege. He had advanced Pauli over the heads of more deserving and more loyal people. He had helped Pauli make his bones and furthered his career in every way. Pauli had not only betrayed the family, he had betrayed his padrone, Peter Clemenza. This lack of respect had to be repaid. Everything else was arranged. Pauli Gatto had been instructed to pick him up at three in the afternoon and to pick him up with his own car, nothing hot. Now, Clemenza took up the telephone and dialed Rocco Lampone's number. He did not identify himself. He simply said, Come to my house. I have an errand for you. He was pleased to note that, despite the early hour, Lampone's voice was not surprised or dazed with sleep, and he simply said, Okay. Good man. Clemenza added, No rush. Have your breakfast and lunch first before you come see me, but not later than two in the afternoon. There was another laconic okay on the other end, and Clemenza hung up the phone. He had already alerted his people about replacing Capo Regimi Tessio's people in the Corleone Mall, so that was done. He had capable subordinates and never interfered in a mechanical operation of that kind. He decided to wash his Cadillac. He loved the car. It gave him such a quiet, peaceful ride, and its upholstery was so rich that he sometimes sat in it for an hour when the weather was good because it was more pleasant than sitting in the house. And it always helped him think when he was grooming the car. He remembered his father in Italy doing the same thing with donkeys. Clemenza worked inside the heated garage. He hated cold. He ran over his plans. You had to be careful with Pauli. The man was like a rat. He could smell danger. And now, of course, despite being so tough, he must be shitting in his pants because the old man was still alive. He'd be as skittish as a donkey with ants up his ass. But Clemenza was accustomed to these circumstances, usual in his work. First, he had to have a good excuse for Rocco to accompany them. Second, he had to have a plausible mission for the three of them to go on. Of course, strictly speaking, this was not necessary. Pauli Gatto could be killed without any of these frills. He was locked in. He could not run away. But Clemenza felt strongly that it was important to keep good working habits and never give away a fraction of a percentage point. You never could tell what might happen. And these matters were, after all, questions of life and death. As he washed his baby blue Cadillac, Peter Clemenza pondered and rehearsed his lines, the expressions of his face. He would be curt with Pauli, as if displeased with him. With a man so sensitive and suspicious as Gatto, this would throw him off the track, or at least leave him uncertain. Undue friendliness would make him wary. But of course, the curtness must not be too angry. It had to be rather an absent-minded sort of irritation. And why Lampone? Pauli would find that most alarming, especially since Lampone had to be in the rear seat. 
Polly wouldn't like being helpless at the wheel with Lamponi behind his head. Clemenza rubbed and polished the metal of his Cadillac furiously. It was going to be tricky, very tricky. For a moment he debated whether to recruit another man, but decided against it. Here he followed basic reasoning. In years to come, a situation might arise where it might be profitable for one of his partners to testify against him. If there were just one accomplice, it was one's word against the other. But the word of a second accomplice could swing the balance. No, they would stick to procedure. What annoyed Clemenza was that the execution had to be public. That is, the body was to be found. He would have much preferred having it disappear. Usual burying grounds were the nearby ocean or the swamplands of New Jersey on land owned by friends of the family or by other more complicated methods. But it had to be public so that embryo traitors would be frightened and the enemy warned that the Corleone family had by no means gone stupid or soft. Salazzo would be made wary by this quick discovery of his spy. The Corleone family would win back some of its prestige. It had been made to look foolish by the shooting of the old man. Clemenza sighed. The Cadillac gleamed like a huge blue steel egg, and he was nowhere near the solving of his problem. Then the solution hit him, logical and to the point. It would explain Rocco Lampone, himself, and Pauli being together and give them a mission of sufficient secrecy and importance. He would tell Pauli that their job today was to find an apartment in case the family decided to go to the mattresses. Whenever a war between the families became bitterly intense, the opponents would set up headquarters in secret apartments where the soldiers could sleep on mattresses scattered through the rooms. This was not so much to keep their families out of danger, their wives and little children, since any attack on non-competence was undreamed of. All parties were too vulnerable to similar retaliation, but it was always smarter to live in some secret place where your everyday movements could not be charted, either by your opponents or by some police who might arbitrarily decide to meddle. And so, usually, a trusted capo regime would be sent out to rent a secret apartment and fill it with mattresses. That apartment would be used as a sally port into the city when an offensive was mounted. It was natural for Clemenza to be sent on such an errand. It was natural for him to take Gatto and Lamponi with him to arrange all the details, including the furnishing of the apartment. Also, Clemenza thought with a grin, Pauli Gatto had proved he was greedy, and the first thought that would pop into his head was how much he would get from Salazzo for this valuable intelligence. Rocco Lamponi arrived early, and Clemenza explained what had to be done and what their roles would be. Lamponi's face lit up with surprised gratitude, and he thanked Clemenza respectfully for the promotion allowing him to serve the family. Clemenza was sure he had done well. He clapped Lamponi on the shoulder and said, Hey, you'll get something better for your living after today. We'll talk about that later. You understand, the family now is occupied with more critical matters, more important things to do. Lamponi made a gesture that said he would be patient, knowing his reward was certain. Clemenza went to his den safe and opened it. He took out a gun and gave it to Lamponi. Use this one. They can never trace it. Leave it in the car with Pauly. When this job is finished, I want you to take your wife and children on a vacation to Florida. Use your own money now and I'll pay you back later. Relax. Get the sun. Use the family hotel in Miami Beach so I'll know where I can get you when I want. Clemenza's wife knocked on the door of the den to tell him that Paul Gatto had arrived. He was parked in the driveway. Clemenza led the way through the garage, and Lamponi followed him. When Clemenza got into the front seat with Gatto, he merely grunted in greeting, an exasperated look on his face. He looked at the wristwatch, as if he expected to find that Gatto was late. The ferret-faced button man was watching him intently, looking for a clue. 
He flinched a little when Lamponi got into the rear seat behind him and said, Blocko, sit on the other side. A big guy like you blocks up my rearview mirror. Lamponi shifted dutifully so that he was sitting behind Clemenza, as if such a request was the most natural thing in the world. Clemenza said sourly to Gatto, Damn, that's Sonny. He's running scared. He's already thinking of going to the mattresses. We have to find a place on the west side. Paulie, you and Rocco got a staff and supply it until the word comes down for the rest of the soldiers to use it. You know a good location? As he had expected, Gatto's eyes became greedily interested. Paulie had swallowed the bait, and because he was thinking how much the information was worth to Salazzo, he was forgetting to think about whether he was in danger. Also, Lamponi was acting his part perfectly, staring out the window in a disinterested, relaxed way. Clemenza congratulated himself on his choice. Gatto shrugged. I'd have to think about it. Clemenza grunted. Drive while you think. I want to get to New York today. Paulie was an expert driver, and traffic going into the city was light at this time in the afternoon. So the early winter darkness was just beginning to fall when they arrived. There was no small talk in the car. Clemenza directed Paulie to drive up to the Washington Heights section. He checked a few apartment buildings and told him to park near Arthur Avenue and wait. He also left Rocco Lamponi in the car. He went into the Vera Mario restaurant and had a light dinner of veal and salad, nodding his hellos to some acquaintances. After an hour had gone by, he walked the several blocks to where the car was parked and entered it. Gatto and Lamponi were still waiting. Shit, they want us back in Long Beach. They got some other job for us now. Sonny says we can let this one go until later. Rocco, you live in the city. Can we drop you off? I have my car at your place, and my old lady needs it first thing in the morning. That's right. And you have to come back with us after all. Again on the ride back to Long Beach, nothing was said. On the stretch of road that led into the city, Clemenza said suddenly, Paulie, pull over. I gotta take a leak. From working together so long, Gatto knew the fat capo regime had a weak bladder. He had often made such a request. Gatto pulled the car off the highway onto the soft earth that led to the swamp. Clemenza climbed out of the car and took a few steps into the bushes. He actually relieved himself. Then, as he opened the door to get back into the car, he took a quick look up and down the highway. There were no lights. The road was completely dark. Clemenza said, Go ahead. A second later, the interior of the car reverberated with the report of a gun. Pauli Gatto seemed to jump forward, his body flinging against the steering wheel and then slumping over to the seat. Clemenza had stepped back hastily to avoid being hit with fragments of skull bone and blood. Rocco Lampone scrambled out of the back seat. He still held the gun, and he threw it into the swamp. He and Clemenza walked hastily to a car parked nearby and got in. Lampone reached underneath the seat and found the key that had been left for them. He started the car and drove Clemenza to his home. Then, instead of going back by the same route, he took the Jones Beach Causeway right on through to the town of Merrick and onto the Meadowbrook Parkway, until he reached the Northern State Parkway. He rode that to the Long Island Expressway, and then continued on to the Whitestone Bridge and through the Bronx to his home in Manhattan. Chapter 7 On the night before the shooting of Don Corleone, his strongest and most loyal and most feared retainer prepared to meet with the enemy. Luca Brasi had made contact with the forces of Salazzo several months before. He had done so on the orders of Don Corleone himself. He had done so by frequenting the nightclubs controlled by the Tattaglia family and by taking up with one of their top call girls. In bed with this call girl, he grumbled about how he was held down in the Corleone family, how his worth was not recognized. After a week of this affair with the call girl, Luca was approached by Bruno Tattaglia, manager of the nightclub. 
Bruno was the youngest son, and ostensibly not connected with the family business of prostitution. But his famous nightclub with its dancing line of long-stemmed beauties was the finishing school for many of the city hookers. The first meeting was all above board, Tatalia offering him a job to work in the family business as enforcer. The flirtation went on for nearly a month. Luca played his role of man infatuated with a young, beautiful girl. Bruno Tatalia the role of a businessman, trying to recruit an able executive from a rival. At one such meeting, Luca pretended to be swayed, then said, But one thing must be understood. I will never go against the Godfather. Don Corleone is a man I respect. I understand that he must put his sons before me in the family business. Bruno Tatalia was one of the new generation, with a barely hidden contempt for the old mustache peats like Luca Brasi, Don Corleone, and even his own father. He was just a little too respectful. Now, he said, My father wouldn't expect you to do anything against the Corleones. Why should he? Everybody gets along with everybody else now. It's not like the old days. It's just that if you're looking for a new job, I can pass along the word to my father. There's always need for a man like you in our business. It's a hard business, and it needs hard men to keep it running smooth. Let me know if you ever make up your mind. Luca shrugged. It's not so bad where I'm at. And so they left it. The general idea had been to lead the Tatalias to believe that he knew about the lucrative narcotics operation and that he wanted a piece of it freelance. In that fashion, he might hear something about Salazzo's plans, if the Turk had any, or whether he was getting ready to step on the toes of Don Corleone. After waiting for two months with nothing else happening, Luca reported to the Don that obviously Salazzo was taking his defeat graciously. The Don had told him to keep trying, but merely as a sideline, not to press it. Luca had dropped into the nightclub the evening before Don Corleone's being shot. Almost immediately, Bruno Tattaglia had come to his table and sat down. I have a friend who wants to talk to you. Bring him over. I'll talk to any friend of yours. No, he wants to see you in private. Who is he? Just a friend of mine. He wants to put a proposition to you. Can you meet him later on tonight? Sure. What time and where? The club closes at four in the morning. Why don't you meet in here while the waiters are cleaning up? They knew his habits, Luca thought. They must have been checking him out. He usually got up about three or four in the afternoon and had breakfast, and then amused himself by gambling with cronies in the family or had a girl. Sometimes he saw one of the midnight movies and then would drop in for a drink at one of the clubs. He never went to bed before dawn, so the suggestion of a 4 a.m. meeting was not as outlandish as it seemed. Sure, sure. I'll be back at four. He left the club and caught a cab to his furnished room on 10th Avenue. He boarded with an Italian family to which he was distantly related. His two rooms were separated from the rest of their railroad flat by a special door. He liked the arrangement because it gave him some family life and also protection against surprise where he was most vulnerable. The sly Turkish fox was going to show his bushy tail, Luca thought. If things went far enough, if Salazzo committed himself tonight, maybe the whole thing could be wound up as a Christmas present for the Don. In his room, Luca unlocked the trunk beneath the bed and took out a bulletproof vest. It was heavy. He undressed and put it on over his woolen underwear, then put his shirt and jacket over it. He thought for a moment of calling the Don's house at Long Beach to tell him of this new development, but he knew the Don never talked over the phone to anyone, and the Don had given him this assignment in secret and so did not want anyone not even Hagen or his eldest son, to know about it. 
Luca always carried a gun. He had a license to carry a gun, probably the most expensive gun license ever issued any place, any time. It had cost a total of $10,000, but it would keep him out of jail if he was frisked by the cops. As a top executive operating official of the family, he rated the license. But tonight, just in case he could finish off the job, he wanted a safe gun, one that could not possibly be traced. But then, thinking the matter over, he decided that he would just listen to the proposition tonight and report back to the godfather, Don Corleone. He made his way back to the club, but he did not drink anymore. Instead, he wandered out to 48th Street, where he had a leisurely late supper at Patsy's, his favorite Italian restaurant. When it was time for his appointment, he drifted uptown to the club entrance. The doorman was no longer there when he went in. The hat-check girl was gone. Only Bruno Tattaglia waited to greet him and lead him to the deserted bar at the side of the room. Before him, he could see the desert of small tables with the polished yellow wood dance floor gleaming like a small diamond in the middle of them. In the shadows was the empty bandstand. Out of it grew the skeleton metal stalk of a microphone. Luca sat at the bar, and Bruno Tattaglia went behind it. Luca refused the drink offered to him and lit a cigarette. It was possible that this would turn out to be something else, not the Turk. But then he saw Salazzo emerge out of the shadows at the far end of the room. Salazzo shook his hand and sat at the bar next to him. Tatalia put a glass in front of the Turk, who nodded his thanks. Salazzo asked, Do you know who I am? Luca nodded. He smiled grimly. The rats were being flushed out of their holes. It would be his pleasure to take care of this renegade Sicilian. Do you know what I am going to ask of you? Luca shook his head. There's big business to be made. I mean millions for everybody at the top level. On a first shipment, I can guarantee you $50,000. I'm talking about drugs. It's a common thing. Why come to me? You want me to talk to my Don? Salazzo grimaced. I've already talked to the Don. He wants no part of it. All right, I can do without him. But I need somebody strong to protect the operation physically. I understand you're not happy with your family. You might make a switch. Luca shrugged. If the offer's good enough. Salazzo had been watching him intently and seemed to have come to a decision. Think about my offer for a few days and then we'll talk again. He put out his hand, but Luca pretended not to see it and busied himself putting a cigarette in his mouth. Behind the bar, Bruno Tattaglia made a lighter appear magically and held it to Luca's cigarette. And then he did a strange thing. He dropped the lighter on the bar and grabbed Luca's right hand, holding it tight. Luca reacted instantly, his body slipping off the bar stool and trying to twist away. But Salazzo had grabbed his other hand at the wrist. Still, Luca was too strong for both of them and would have broken free, except that a man stepped out of the shadows behind him and threw a thin silken cord around his neck. The cord pulled tight, choking off Luca's breath. His face became purple, the strength in his arms drained away. Tatalia and Salazzo held his hands easily now, and they stood there curiously childlike as the man behind Luca pulled the cord around Luca's neck tighter and tighter. Suddenly, the floor was wet and slippery. Luca's sphincter, no longer under control, opened. The waste of his body spilled out. There was no strength in him anymore, and his legs folded. His body sagged. Salazzo and Tatalia let his hands go, and only the strangler stayed with the victim, sinking to his knees to follow Luca's falling body, drawing the cord so tight that it cut into the flesh of the neck and disappeared. Luca's eyes were bulging out of his head, as if in the utmost surprise, 
and this surprise was the only humanity remaining to him. He was dead. Salazzo said, I don't want him found. It's important that he not be found right now. He turned on his heel and left, disappearing back into the shadows. Chapter 8 The day after the shooting of Don Corleone was a busy time for the family. Michael stayed by the phone, relaying messages to Sonny. Tom Hagen was busy trying to find a mediator satisfactory to both parties so that a conference could be arranged with Salazzo. The Turk had suddenly become cagey. Perhaps he knew that the family button men of Clemenza and Tessio were ranging far and wide over the city in an attempt to pick up his trail. But Salazzo was sticking close to his hideout, as were all top members of the Tataglia family. This was expected by Sonny, an elementary precaution he knew the enemy was bound to take. Clemenza was tied up with Pauli Gatto. Tessio had been given the assignment of trying to track down the whereabouts of Luca Brasi. Luca had not been home since the night before the shooting, a bad sign. But Sonny could not believe that Brasi had either turned traitor or had been taken by surprise. Mama Corleone was staying in the city with friends of the family so that she could be near the hospital. Carlo Rizzi, the son-in-law, had offered his services but had been told to take care of his own business that Don Corleone had set him up in, a lucrative bookmaking territory in the Italian section of Manhattan. Connie was staying with her mother in town so that she, too, could visit her father in the hospital. Freddie was still under sedation in his own room of his parents' house. Sonny and Michael had paid him a visit and had been astonished at his paleness, his obvious illness. When they left Freddie's room, Sonny said to Michael, Christ, he looks like he got plugged worse than the old man. Michael shrugged. He had seen soldiers in the same condition on the battlefield, but he had never expected it to happen to Freddy. He remembered the middle brother as being physically the toughest one in the family when all of them were kids, but he had also been the most obedient son to his father, and yet everyone knew that the Don had given up on this middle son ever being important to the business. He wasn't quite smart enough, and failing that, not quite ruthless enough. He was too retiring a person, did not have enough force. Late in the afternoon, Michael got a call from Johnny Fontaine in Hollywood. Sonny took the phone. Nah, Johnny, no use coming back here to see the old man. He's too sick and it would give you a lot of bad publicity. And I know the old man wouldn't like that. Wait until he's better and we can move him home, then come see him. Okay. Now I'll give him your regards. Sonny hung up the phone. He turned to Michael. That'll make Pop happy that Johnny wanted to fly from California to see how he was. Late that afternoon, Michael was called to the listed phone in the kitchen by one of Clemenza's men. It was Kay. Is your father all right? Her voice was a little strained, a little unnatural. Michael knew that she couldn't quite believe what had happened, that his father really was what the newspapers called a gangster. He'll be okay. Can I come with you when you visit him in the hospital? Michael laughed. She had remembered him telling her how important it was to do such things if you wanted to get along with the old Italians. This is a special case. If the newspaper guys get a hold of your name and background, you'll be on page three of the Daily News. Girl from old Yankee family mixed up with son of a big mafia chief. How would your parents like that? My parents never read the Daily News. Again, there was an awkward pause, and then she said, You're okay, aren't you, Mike? You're not in any danger. Mike laughed again. Uh, I'm known as the sissy of the Corleone family. No threat. So they don't have to bother coming after me. Now it's all over, Kay. There won't be any more trouble. It was all sort of an accident anyway. I'll explain when I see you. When will that be? Michael pondered. How about late tonight? We'll have a drink and supper in your hotel, and then I'll go to the hospital and see my old man. I'm getting tired of hanging around here answering phones. Okay? But don't tell anybody. I don't want newspaper photographers snapping pictures of us together. 
No kidding, Kay. It's damned embarrassing. Especially for your parents. All right. I'll be waiting. Can I do any Christmas shopping for you or anything else? No. Just be ready. She gave a little excited laugh. I'll be ready. Aren't I always? Yes, you are. That's why you're my best girl. I love you. Can you say it? Michael looked at the four hoods sitting in the kitchen. No. Tonight, okay? Okay. He hung up. Clemenza had finally come back from his day's work and was bustling around the kitchen cooking up a huge pot of tomato sauce. Michael nodded to him and went to the corner office where he found Hagen and Sonny waiting for him impatiently. Is Clemenza out there? Michael grinned. He's cooking up spaghetti for the troops, just like the army. Tell him to cut out that crap and come on in here. I have more important things for him to do. Get Tessio in here with him. In a few minutes, they were all gathered in the office. Sonny said curtly to Clemenza, You take care of him? Clemenza nodded. You won't see him anymore. With a slight electric shock, Michael realized they were talking about Pauly Gatto, and the little Pauly was dead, murdered by that jolly wedding dancer, Clemenza. Sonny asked Hagen, You have any luck with Salazzo? Hagen shook his head. He seems to have cooled off on the negotiation idea. Anyway, he doesn't seem to be too anxious. Or maybe he's just being very careful so that our button men won't nail him. Anyway, I haven't been able to set up a top-notch go-between he'll trust. But he must know he has to negotiate now. He missed his chance when he let the old man get away from him. He's a smart guy. The smartest our family ever came up against. Maybe he figured we're just stalling until the old man gets better or we can get a line on him. Hagen shrugged. Sure, he figures that. But he still has to negotiate. He has no choice. I'll get it set up tomorrow, that's certain. One of Clemenza's men knocked on the office door and then came in. He said to Clemenza, It just came over the radio. The cops found Poligato, dead in his car. Clemenza nodded and said to the man, Don't worry about it. The button man gave his capo regime an astonished look, which was followed by a look of comprehension before he went back to the kitchen. The conference went on as if there had been no interruption. Sonny asked Hagen, Any change in Adon's condition? Hagen shook his head. He's okay, but he won't be able to talk for another couple of days. He's all knocked out, still recovering from the operation. Your mother spends most of the day with him. Connie, too. There's cops all over the hospital, and Tessio's men hang around, too, just in case. In a couple of days, he'll be all right, and then we can see what he wants us to do. Meanwhile, we have to keep Salazzo from doing anything rash. That's why I want to start you talking deals with him. Sonny grunted. Until he does, I've got Clemenza and Tessio looking for him. Maybe we'll get lucky and solve the whole business. You won't get lucky. Salazzo is too smart. Hagen paused. He knows once he comes to the table, he'll have to go our way, mostly. That's why he's stalling. I'm guessing he's trying to line up support from the other New York families so that we won't go after him when the old man gives us the word. Sonny frowned. Why the hell should they do that? To avert a big war which hurts everybody and brings the papers and government into the act. Also, Salazzo will give him a piece of the action. And you know how much dough there is in drugs. The Corleone family doesn't need it. We have the gambling, which is the best business to have. But the other families are hungry. Salazzo's a proven man. They know he can make the operation go on a big scale. Alive, he's money in their pockets. Daddy's trouble. Sonny's face was as Michael had never seen it. The heavy, cupid mouth and bronzed skin seemed gray. I don't give a fuck what they want. They better not mess in this fight. Clemenza and Tessio shifted uneasily in their chairs. Infantry leaders who hear their general rave about storming an impregnable hill, no matter what the cost. Hagen said a little impatiently, Come on, Sonny, your father wouldn't like you thinking that way. You know what he always says. That's a waste. Sure, we're not going to let anybody stop us if the old man says we go after Salazzo. But this is not a personal thing. This is business. 
If we go after the Turk and the families interfere, we'll negotiate the issue. If the families see that we're determined to have Salazzo, they'll let us. The Don will make concessions in other areas to square things. But don't go blood crazy on a thing like this. It's business. Even the shooting of your father was business, not personal. You should know that by now. Sonny's eyes were still hard. Okay, I understand all that. Just so long as you understand that nobody stands in our way when we want Salazzo. Sonny turned to Tessio. Any leads on Luca? Tessio shook his head. None at all. Salazzo must have snatched him. Salazzo wasn't worried about Luca, which struck me as funny. He's too smart not to worry about a guy like Luca. I think he maybe got him out of the picture, one way or the other. Christ, I hope Luca isn't fighting against us. That's the one thing I'd be afraid of. Clemenza, Tessio, how do you two guys figure it? Anybody could go wrong. Look at Paulie. But with Luca, he was a man who could only go one way. The Godfather was the only thing he believed in, the only man he feared. But not only that, Sonny, he respected your father as no one else respected him, and the Godfather has earned respect from everyone. No, Luca would never betray us. And I find it hard to believe that a man like Salazzo, no matter how cunning, could surprise Luca. He was a man who suspected everyone and everything. He was always ready for the worst. I think maybe he just went off someplace for a few days. We'll be hearing from him any time now. Sonny turned to Tessio. The Brooklyn capo regime shrugged. Any man could turn traitor. Luca was very touchy. Maybe the Don offended him some way. That could be. I think, though, that Salazzo gave him a little surprise. That fits in with what the consigliere says. We should expect the worst. Sonny said to all of them, Salazzo should get the word soon about Pauli Gatto. How will that affect them? It'll make him think. He'll know the Corleone family are not fools. He will realize that he was very lucky yesterday. That wasn't luck. Salazzo was planning that for weeks. They must have tailed the old man to his office every day and watched his routine. Then they bought Paulie off and maybe Luca. They snatched Tom right on the button. They did everything they wanted to do. They were unlucky, not lucky. Those button men they hired weren't good enough and the old man moved too quick. If they had killed him, I would have had to make a deal and Salazzo would have won. For now. I would have waited maybe and got him five, ten years from now. But don't call him lucky, Pete. That's underrating him. And we've done that too much lately. One of the button men brought a bowl of spaghetti in from the kitchen and then some plates, forks, and wine. They ate as they talked. Michael watched in amazement. He didn't eat, neither did Tom. But Sonny, Clemenza, and Tessio dug in, mopping up sauce with crusts of bread. It was almost comical. They continued their discussion. Tessio didn't think that the loss of Poligato would upset Salazzo. In fact, he thought that the Turk might have anticipated it, indeed, might have welcomed it. A useless mouth off the payroll, and he would not be frightened by it. After all, would they be in such a situation? Michael spoke up diffidently. I know I'm an amateur in this, but from everything you guys have said about Salazzo, plus the fact that all of a sudden he's out of touch with Tom, I guess he has an ace up his sleeve. He might be ready to pull off something real tricky that would put him back on top. Well, if we could figure out what that would be, we'd be in the driver's seat. Yeah, I thought of that. And the only thing I can figure is Luca. The word is already out that he's to be brought here before he's allowed any of his old rights in the family. The only other thing I can think of is that Salazzo has made his deal with the families in New York, and we'll get the word tomorrow that they will be against us in a war. That we'll have to give the Turk his deal. Right, Tom? Hagen nodded. That's what it looks like to me. 
And we can't move against that kind of opposition without your father. He's the only one who can stand against the families. He has the political connections they always need, and he can use them for the trading, if he wants to badly enough. Lamenza said a little arrogantly for a man whose top button man had recently betrayed him. Solazzo will never get near this house, boss. You don't have to worry about that. Sonny looked at him thoughtfully for a moment. Then he said to Tessio, How about the hospital? Your men got it covered? For the first time during the conference, Tessio seemed to be absolutely sure of his ground. Outside and inside. Right around the clock. The cops have it covered pretty good, too. Detectives at the bedroom door waiting to question the old man. <laughs> That's a laugh. The Don is still getting that stuff in the tubes. No food, so we don't have to worry about the kitchen, which would be something to worry about with those Turks. They believe in poison. They can't get at the Don. Not in any way. Sonny tilted back in his chair. It wouldn't be me. They have to do business with me. They need the family machine. He grinned at Michael. I wonder if it's you. Maybe Salazzo figures to snatch you and hold you for a hostage to make a deal. Michael thought ruefully, there goes my date with Kay. Sonny wouldn't let him out of the house. But Hagen said impatiently, No, he could have snatched Mike any time if he wanted insurance. But everybody knows that Mike is not in the family business. He's a civilian, and if Salazzo snatches him, then he loses all the other New York families. Even the Tatalias would have to help hunt him down. No, it's simple enough. Tomorrow we'll get a representative from all the families who will tell us we have to do business with a Turk. That's what he's waiting for. That's his ace in the hole. Michael heaved a sigh of relief. Good. I have to go into town tonight. Why? Michael grinned. I figured I'll drop into the hospital, visit the old man, see Mom and Connie, and I got some other things to do. Like the Don, Michael never told his real business, and now he didn't want to tell Sonny he was seeing Kay Adams. There was no reason not to tell him. It was just habit. There was a loud murmur of voices in the kitchen. Clemenza went out to see what was happening. When he came back, he was holding Luca Brasi's bulletproof vest in his hands. Wrapped in the vest was a huge, dead fish. Turk has heard about his spy, Poligato. And now we know about Luca Brasi. Sonny lit a cigar and took a shot of whiskey. Michael, bewildered, said, What the hell does that fish mean? It was Hagen, the Irisher, the consigliere, who answered him. The fish means that Luca Brasi is sleeping on the bottom of the ocean. It's an old Sicilian message. Chapter 9 When Michael Corleone went into the city that night, it was with a depressed spirit. He felt that he was being enmeshed in the family business against his will, and he resented Sonny using him even to answer the phone. He felt uncomfortable being on the inside of the family councils, as if he could be absolutely trusted with such secrets as murder. And now going to see Kay, he felt guilty about her also. He had never been completely honest with her about his family. He had told her about them, but always with little jokes and colorful anecdotes that made them seem more like adventurers in a Technicolor movie than what they really were. And now his father had been shot down in the street, and his eldest brother was making plans for murder. That was putting it plainly and simply but that was never how he would tell it to Kay. He had already said his father being shot was more like an accident and that all the trouble was over. Hell, it looked like it was just beginning. Sonny and Tom were off-center on this guy, Salazzo. They were still underrating him, even though Sonny was smart enough to see the danger. Michael tried to think what the Turk might have up his sleeve. He was obviously a bold man, a clever man, a man of extraordinary force. You had to figure him to come up with a real surprise. But then... Sonny and Tom and Clemenza and Tessio were all agreed that everything was under control, and they all had more experience than he did. 
He was the civilian in this war, Michael thought wryly, and they'd have to give him a hell of a lot better medals than he'd gotten in World War II to make him join this one. Thinking this made him feel guilty about not feeling more sympathy for his father. His own father shot full of holes. And yet, in a curious way, Michael, better than anyone else, understood when Tom had said it was just business, not personal. That his father had paid for the power he had wielded all his life, the respect he had extorted from all those around him. What Michael wanted was out, out of all this, to lead his own life. But he couldn't cut loose from the family until the crisis was over. He had to help in a civilian capacity. With sudden clarity, he realized that he was annoyed with the role assigned to him, that of the privileged non-combatant, the excused conscientious objector. That was why the word civilian kept popping into his skull in such an irritating way. When he got to the hotel, Kay was waiting for him in the lobby. A couple of Clemenza's people had driven him into town and dropped him off on a nearby corner after making sure they were not followed. They had dinner together and some drinks. What time are you going to visit your father? Michael looked at his watch. Visiting hours end at 8.30. I think I'll go after everybody has left. They'll let me up. He has a private room and his own nurses, so I can just sit with him for a while. I don't think he can talk yet, or even know if I'm there. But I have to show respect. I feel so sorry for your father. He seemed like such a nice man at the wedding. I can't believe the things the papers are printing about him. I'm sure most of it's not true. I don't think so either. He was surprised to find himself so secretive with Kay. He loved her. He trusted her but he would never tell her anything about his father or the family. She was an outsider. What about you? Are you going to get mixed up in this gang war the papers are talking about so gleefully? Michael grinned, unbuttoned his jacket, and held it wide open. Look, no guns? Kay laughed. It was getting late, and they went up to their room. She mixed a drink for both of them and sat on his lap as they drank. Beneath her dress, she was all silk until his hand touched the glowing skin of her thigh. They fell back on the bed together and made love with all their clothes on, their mouths glued together. When they were finished, they lay very still, feeling the heat of their bodies burning through their garments. Kay murmured, Is that what you soldiers call a quickie? Yeah. It's not bad. They dozed off until Michael suddenly started up anxiously and looked at his watch. Damn, it's nearly ten. I have to get down to the hospital. He went to the bathroom to wash up and comb his hair. Kay came in after him and put her arms around his waist from behind. When are we going to get married? Whenever you say. As soon as this family thing quiets down and my old man gets better. I think you'd better explain things to your parents, though. What should I explain? Michael ran the comb through his hair. Just say that you've met a brave, handsome guy of Italian descent, top marks at Dartmouth, distinguished service cross during the war, plus the Purple Heart, honest, hardworking, but his father is a mafia chief who has to kill bad people. Sometimes bribe high government officials, and in his line of work gets shot full of holes himself. But that has nothing to do with his honest, hard-working son. You think he remember all that? Kay let go his body and leaned against the door of the bathroom. Is he really... Well, does he really... She paused. Kill people? Michael finished combing his hair. I don't really know. Nobody really knows. But I wouldn't be surprised. Before he went out the door, she asked, When will I see you again? Michael kissed her. I want you to go home and think things over in that little hick town of yours. I don't want you to get mixed up in this business in any way. After the Christmas holidays, I'll be back at school and we'll get together up in Hanover. Okay? Okay. She watched him go out the door, saw him wave before he stepped into the elevator.
She had never felt so close to him, never so much in love, and if someone had told her she would not see Michael again until three years passed, she would not have been able to bear the anguish of it. When Michael got out of the cab in front of the French hospital, he was surprised to see that the street was completely deserted. When he entered the hospital, he was even more surprised to find the lobby empty. Damn it, what the hell were Clemenza and Tessio doing? Sure, they never went to West Point, but they knew enough about tactics to have outposts. A couple of their men should have been in the lobby, at least. Even the latest visitors had departed. It was almost 10.30 at night. Michael was tense and alert now. He didn't bother to stop at the information desk. He already knew his father's room number up on the fourth floor. He took the self-service elevator. Oddly enough, nobody stopped him until he reached the nurse's station on the fourth floor. But he strode right past her query and on to his father's room. There was no one outside the door. Where the hell were the two detectives who were supposed to be waiting around to guard and question the old man? Where the hell were Tessio and Clemenza's people? Could there be someone inside the room? But the door was open. Michael went in. There was a figure in the bed, and by the December moonlight, straining through the window, Michael could see his father's face. Even now it was impassive. The chest heaved shallowly with his uneven breath. Tubes hung from steel gallows beside the bed and ran into his nose. On the floor was a glass jar receiving the poisons emptied from his stomach by other tubes. Michael stayed there for a few moments to make sure his father was all right, then backed out of the room. He told the nurse, My name is Michael Corleone. I just want to sit with my father. What happened to the detectives who were supposed to be guarding him? The nurse was a pretty young thing with a great deal of confidence in the power of her office. Oh, your father just had too many visitors. It interfered with the hospital service. The police came and made them all leave about ten minutes ago, and then just five minutes ago I had to call the detectives to the phone for an emergency alarm from their headquarters, and then they left too. But don't worry, I look in on your father often, and I can hear any sound from his room. That's why we leave the doors open. Thank you. I'll sit with him for a little while, okay? She smiled at him. Just for a little bit, and then I'm afraid you'll have to leave. It's the rules, you know. Michael went back into his father's room. He took the phone from its cradle and got the hospital operator to give him the house in Long Beach, the phone in the corner office room. Sonny answered. Sonny, I'm down at the hospital. I came down late. Sonny, there's nobody here. None of Tessio's people, no detectives at the door. The old man was completely unprotected. His voice was trembling. There was a long silence, and then Sonny's voice came, low and impressed. This is Salazzo's move you were talking about. That's what I figured, too. But how did he get the cops to clear everybody out, and where did they go? What happened to Tessio's men? Jesus Christ, has that bastard Salazzo got the New York Police Department in his pocket, too? Take it easy, kid. Sonny's voice was soothing. We got lucky again with you going to visit the hospital so late. Stay in the old man's room. Lock the door from the inside. I'll have some men there inside of 15 minutes, soon as I make some calls. Just sit tight and don't panic. Okay, kid? I won't panic. For the first time since it had all started, he felt a furious anger rising in him, a cold hatred for his father's enemies. He hung up the phone and rang the buzzer for the nurse. He decided to use his own judgment and disregard Sonny's orders. When the nurse came in, he said, I don't want you to get frightened, but we have to move my father right away to another room or another floor. Can you disconnect all these tubes so we can wheel the bed out? Well, that's ridiculous. We have to get permission from the doctor. Michael spoke very quickly. You've read about my father in the papers. You've seen that there's no one here tonight to guard him. Now, I've just gotten word some men will come into the hospital to kill him. Please believe me and help me. He could be extraordinarily persuasive when he wanted to be. We don't have to disconnect the tubes. We can wheel the stand with the bed. 
Do you have an empty room? At the end of the hall. It was done in a matter of moments, very quickly and very efficiently. Stay here with him until help comes. If you're outside at your station, you might get hurt. At that moment, he heard his father's voice from the bed, hoarse but full of strength. Michael? Is it you? What happened? What is it? Michael leaned over the bed. He took his father's hand in his. It's Mike. Don't be afraid. Now listen, don't make any noise at all, especially if somebody calls out your name. Some people want to kill you, understand? But I'm here, so don't be afraid. Don Corleone, still not fully conscious of what had happened to him the day before, in terrible pain, yet smiled benevolently on his youngest son, wanting to tell him, but it was too much effort. Why should I be afraid now? Strange men have come to kill me ever since I was 12 years old. Chapter 10 The hospital was small and private, with just one entrance. Michael looked through the window down into the street. There was a curved courtyard that had steps leading down into the street, and the street was empty of cars. But whoever came into the hospital would have to come through that entrance. He knew he didn't have much time, so he ran out of the room and down the four flights and through the wide doors of the ground floor entrance. Off to the side, he saw the ambulance yard, and there was no car there, no ambulances either. Michael stood on the sidewalk outside the hospital and lit a cigarette. He unbuttoned his coat and stood in the light of a lamppost so that his features could be seen. A young man was walking swiftly down from Ninth Avenue, a package under his arm. The young man wore a combat jacket and had a heavy shock of black hair. His face was familiar when he came under the lamplight, but Michael could not place it. But the young man stopped in front of him and put out his hand, saying in a heavy Italian accent, Don Michael, do you remember me? Enzo, the baker's helper to Nazarene at the Penitera, his son-in-law. Your father saved my life by getting the government to let me stay in America. Michael shook his hand. He remembered him now. I've come to pay my respects to your father. Will they let me into the hospital so late? Michael smiled and shook his head. No, but thanks anyway. I'll tell the Don you came. A car came roaring down the street, and Michael was instantly alert. Leave here quickly. There may be trouble. You don't want to get involved with the police. He saw the look of fear on the young Italian's face. Trouble with the police might mean being deported or refusal of citizenship. But the young man stood fast. He whispered in Italian, If there's trouble, I'll stay to help. I owe it to the godfather. Michael was touched. He was about to tell the young man to go away again, but then he thought, why not let him stay? Two men in front of the hospital might scare off any of Salazzo's crew sent to do a job. One man almost certainly would not. He gave Enzo a cigarette and lit it for him. They both stood under the lamppost in the cold December night. The yellow panes of the hospital, bisected by the greens of Christmas decorations, twinkled down on them. They had almost finished their cigarettes when a long, low, black car turned into 30th Street from 9th Avenue and cruised toward them, very close to the curb. It almost stopped. Michael peered to see their faces inside, his body flinching involuntarily. The car seemed about to stop, then speeded forward. Somebody had recognized him. Michael gave Enzo another cigarette and noticed that the baker's hands were shaking. To his surprise, his own hands were steady. They stayed in the street, smoking, for what was no more than ten minutes, when suddenly the night air was split by a police siren. A patrol car made a screaming turn from Ninth Avenue and pulled up in front of the hospital. Two more squad cars followed right behind it. Suddenly, the hospital entranceway was flooded with uniformed police and detectives. Michael heaved a sigh of relief. Good old Sonny must have gotten through right away. 
he moved forward to meet them. Two huge, burly policemen grabbed his arms. Another frisked him. A massive police captain, gold braid on his cap, came up the steps, his men parting respectfully to leave a path. He was a vigorous man for his girth, and despite the white hair that peeked out of his cap, his face was beefy red. He came up to Michael. I thought I got all you guinea hoods locked up. Who the hell are you and what are you doing here? One of the cops standing beside Michael said, He's clean, Captain. Michael didn't answer. He was studying this police captain, coldly searching his face, the metallic blue eyes. A detective in plain clothes said, That's Michael Corleone, the Don's son. What happened to the detectives who were supposed to be guarding my father? Who pulled him off that detail? The police captain was choleric with rage. You fucking hood! Who the hell are you to tell me my business? I pulled him off. I don't give a shit how many Dago gangsters kill each other. If it was up to me, I wouldn't lift a finger to keep your old man from getting knocked off. Now get the hell out of here. Get out of this street, you punk, and stay out of this hospital when it's not visiting hours. Michael was still studying him intently. He was not angry at what this police captain was saying. His mind was racing furiously. Was it possible that Salazzo had been in that first car and had seen him standing in front of the hospital? Was it possible that Salazzo had then called this captain and said, How come the Corleone's men are still around the hospital when I paid you to lock them up? Was it possible that all had been carefully planned, as Sonny had said? Everything fitted in. Still cool, he said to the captain, I'm not leaving this hospital until you put guards around my father's room. The captain didn't bother answering. He said to the detective standing behind him, Phil, lock this punk up. The kid is clean, Captain. He's a war hero. He's never been mixed up in the rackets. The papers could make us stink. The captain started to turn on the detective, his face red with fury. God damn it, I said lock him up. Michael, still thinking clearly, not angry, said with deliberate malice, How much is the Turk paying you to set my father up, Captain? The police captain turned to him. He said to the two burly patrolmen, Hold him. Michael felt his arms pinned to his sides. He saw the captain's massive fist arching toward his face. He tried to weave away, but the fist caught him high on the cheekbone. A grenade exploded in his skull, his mouth filled with blood and small, hard bones that he realized were his teeth. He could feel the side of his head puff up as if it were filling with air. His legs were weightless, and he would have fallen if the two policemen had not held him up. But he was still conscious. The plainclothes detective had stepped in front of him to keep the captain from hitting him again. Jesus Christ, Captain, you really hurt him. I didn't touch him. He attacked me and he fell. You understand that? He resisted arrest. Through a red haze, Michael could see more cars pulling up to the curb. Men were getting out. One of them he recognized as Clemenza's lawyer, who was now speaking to the police captain, suavely and surely. The Corleone family has hired a firm of private detectives to guard Mr. Corleone. These men with me are licensed to carry firearms, Captain. If you arrest them, you'll have to appear before a judge in the morning and tell him why. The lawyer glanced at Michael. Do you want to prefer charges against whoever did this to you? Michael had trouble talking. His jaws wouldn't come together, but he managed to mumble. I slipped. I slipped and fell. He saw the captain give him a triumphant glance, and he tried to answer that glance with a smile. At all costs, he wanted to hide the delicious, icy chilliness that controlled his brain, the surge of wintry, cold hatred that pervaded his body. He wanted to give no warning to anyone in this world as to how he felt at this moment, as the Don would not. Then he felt himself carried into the hospital, and he lost consciousness. When he woke up in the morning, he found that his jaw had been wired together, and that four of his teeth along the left side of his mouth were missing. Hagen was sitting beside his bed.
Did they drug me up? Yeah. They had to dig some bone fragments out of your gums, and they figured it'd be too painful. Besides, you were practically out anyway. Is there anything else wrong with me? No. Sonny wants you out at the Long Beach house. Think you can make it? Sure. Is it done all right? Hagen flushed. I think we've solved the problem now. We have a firm of private detectives, and we have the whole area loaded. I'll tell you more when we get in the car. Clemenza was driving. Michael and Hagen sat in the back. Michael's head throbbed. So what the hell really happened last night? Did you guys ever find out? Sonny has an inside man, that Detective Phillips, who tried to protect you. He gave us the scoop. The police captain, McCluskey, is a guy who's been on the take very heavy ever since he's been a patrolman. Our family has paid him quite a bit, and he's greedy and untrustworthy to do business with. But Salazzo must have paid him a big price. McCluskey had all Tessio's men around and in the hospital arrested right after visiting ours. It didn't help that some of them were carrying guns. Then McCluskey pulled the official guard detectives off the Don's door, claimed he needed them and that some other cops were supposed to go over and take their place, but they got their assignments bollocksed. Baloney. He was paid off to set the Don up. And Philip said he's the kind of guy who'll try it again. Salazzo must have given him a fortune for openers and promised him the moon to come. Was Mike getting hurt in the papers? No, we kept that quiet. Nobody wants that known. Not the cops, not us. Good. That boy Enzo get away? Yeah, he was smarter than you. When the cops came, he disappeared. He claims he stuck with you while Salazzo's car went by. Is that true? Yeah, he's a good kid. He'll be taken care of. You feeling okay? His face was concerned. You look lousy. I'm okay. What was that police captain's name? McCluskey. By the way, it might make you feel better to know that the Corleone family finally got up on the scoreboard. Bruno Tattaglia, four o'clock this morning. How come? I thought we were supposed to sit tight. Hagen shrugged. After what happened at the hospital, Sonny got hard. The button men are out all over New York and New Jersey. We made the list last night. I'm trying to hold Sonny in, Mike. Maybe you can talk to him. This whole business can still be settled without a major war. I'll talk to him. Is there a conference this morning? Yeah. Salazzo finally got in touch and wants to sit down with us. A negotiator is arranging the details. That means we win. Salazzo knows he's lost and he wants to get out with his life. Hagen paused. Maybe he thought we were soft, ready to be taken because we didn't strike back. Now with one of the Tatalia sons dead, he knows we mean business. He really took an awful gamble bucking the Don. By the way, we got the confirmation on Luca. They killed him the night before they shot your father. In Bruno's nightclub. Imagine that. No wonder they caught him off guard. At the houses in Long Beach, the entrance to the mall was blocked by a long black car parked across its mouth. Two men leaned against the hood of the car. The two houses on each side, Michael noticed, had opened windows on their upper floors. Christ, Sonny must really mean business. Clemenza parked the car outside the mall, and they walked inside it. The two guards were Clemenza's men, and he gave them a frown of greeting that served as a salute. The men nodded their heads in acknowledgment. There were no smiles, no greetings. Clemenza led Hagen and Michael Corleone into the house. The door was opened by another guard before they rang. He had obviously been watching from a window. They went to the corner office and found Sonny and Tessio waiting for them. Sonny came to Michael, took his younger brother's head in his hands. Beautiful, beautiful. Michael knocked his hands away and went to the desk and poured himself some scotch, hoping it would dull the ache in his wired jaw. The five of them sat around the room, but the atmosphere was different than their earlier meetings. Sonny was gayer, more cheerful, and Michael realized what that gaiety meant. There were no longer any doubts in his older brother's mind. 
He was committed, and nothing would sway him. The attempt by Salazzo the night before was the final straw. There could no longer be any question of a truce. Sonny said to Hagen, We got a call from the negotiator while you were gone. The Turk wants a meeting now. Sonny laughed. The ball's on that son of a bitch. After he crapped out last night, he wants a meeting today or the next day. Meanwhile, we're supposed just to lay back and take everything he dishes out. What fucking nerve? What did you answer? Sonny grinned. I said, sure, why not? Anytime he says, I'm in no hurry. I've got a hundred button men out on the street, 24 hours a day. If Salazzo shows one hair on his asshole, he's dead. Let them take all the time they want. Was there a definite proposal? Yeah. He wants us to send Mike to meet him to hear his proposition. The negotiator guarantees Mike's safety. Salazzo doesn't ask us to guarantee his safety. He knows he can't ask that. No point. So the meeting will be arranged on his side. His people will pick Mike up and take Mike to the meeting place. Mike will listen to Salazzo and then they'll turn him loose. But the meeting place is secret. The promise is the deal will be so good we can't turn it down. What about the Tataliers? What will they do about Bruno? That's part of the deal. The negotiator says the Tatalia family has agreed to go along with Salazzo. They'll forget about Bruno Tatalia. He pays for what they did to my father. One cancels out the other. Sonny laughed again. The nervy bastards. We should hear what they have to say. Sonny shook his head from side to side. No, no, consigliere, not this time. His voice held a faint trace of Italian accent. He was consciously mocking his father just to kid around. No more meetings, no more discussions, no more Salazzo tricks. When the negotiator gets in touch with us again for our answer, I want you to give him one message. I want Salazzo. If not, it's all out war. We'll go to the mattresses and we'll put all the button men out on the street. Business will just have to suffer. The other families won't stand for an all-out war. It puts too much heat on everybody. Sonny shrugged. They have a simple solution. Give me Salazzo. Or fight the Corleone family. Sonny paused, then said roughly, No more advice on how to patch it up, Tom. The decision is made. Your job is to help me win. Understand? Hagen bowed his head. He was deep in thought for a moment. Then he said, I spoke to your contact in the police station. He says that Captain McCluskey is definitely on Salazzo's payroll and for big money. Not only that, but McCluskey is going to get a piece of the drug operation. McCluskey has agreed to be Salazzo's bodyguard. The Turk doesn't poke his nose out of his hole without McCluskey. When he meets Mike for the conference, McCluskey will be sitting beside him, in civilian clothes but carrying his gun. Now what you have to understand, Sonny, is that while Salazzo is guarded like this, he's invulnerable. Nobody has ever gunned down a New York police captain and gotten away with it. The heat in this town would be unbearable, what with the newspapers, the whole police department, the churches, everything. That would be disastrous. The families would be after you. The Corleone family would become outcasts. Even the old man's political protection would run for cover, so take that into consideration. Sonny shrugged. McCluskey can't stay with the Turk forever. We'll wait. Tessio and Clemenza were puffing on their cigars uneasily, not daring to speak, but sweating. It would be their skins that would go on the line if the wrong decision was made. Michael spoke for the first time. He asked Hagen, Can the old man be moved out of the hospital under the mall here? Hagen shook his head. That's the first thing I asked. Impossible. He's in very bad shape. He'll pull through, but he needs all kinds of attention. Maybe some more surgery. Impossible. Then you have to get Salazzo right away. We can't wait. The guy's too dangerous. 
He'll come up with some new idea. Remember, the key is still that he gets rid of the old man. He knows that. Okay, he knows that now it's very tough, so he's willing to take defeat for his life. But if he's going to get killed anyway, he'll have another crack at the Don. And with that police captain helping him, who knows what the hell might happen. We can't take that chance. We have to get Salazzo right away. Sonny was scratching his chin thoughtfully. You're right, kid. You got right to the old nuts. We can't let Salazzo get another crack at the old man. What about Captain McCluskey? Sonny turned to Michael with an odd little smile. Yeah, kid. What about that tough police captain? Okay. It's an extreme. But there are times when the most extreme measures are justified. Let's think now that we have to kill McCluskey. The way to do it would be to have him heavily implicated so that it's not an honest police captain doing his duty, but a crooked police official mixed up in the rackets who got what was coming to him, like any crook. We have newspaper people on our payroll. We can give that story to them with enough proof so that they can back it up. That should take some of the heat off. How does that sound? Michael looked around deferentially to the others. Tessio and Clemenza had gloomy faces and refused to speak. Sonny said with the same odd smile, Go on, kid, you're doing great. Out of the mouths of infants, as Adon always used to say. Go ahead, Mike, tell us more. Hagen was smiling, too, a little, and averting his head. Michael flushed. Well, they want me to go to a conference with Salazzo. It will be me, Salazzo, and McCluskey all on our own. Set up the meeting for two days from now. Then get our informers to find out where the meeting will be held. Insist that it has to be a public place, that I'm not going to let them take me to any apartments or houses. Let it be a restaurant or a bar at the height of the dinner hour, something like that, so that I'll feel safe. They'll feel safe, too. Even Salazzo won't figure that we'll dare to gun the captain. They'll frisk me when I meet them, so I'll have to be clean then. Figure out a way you can get a weapon to me while I'm meeting them. Then I'll take both of them. All four heads turned and stared at him. Clemenza and Tessio were gravely astonished. Hagen looked a little sad, but not surprised. He started to speak and thought better of it. But Sonny, his heavy Cupid's face twitching with mirth, suddenly broke out in loud roars of laughter. It was deep belly laughter, not faking. He was really breaking up. He pointed a finger at Michael, trying to speak through gasps of mirth. You, the high-class college kid, you never wanted to get mixed up in a family business. Now you want to kill a police captain and a Turk just because you got your face smashed by McCluskey. You're taking it personal. It's just business and you're taking it personal. You want to kill these two guys just because you got slapped in the face? It was all a lot of crap. All these years, it was just a lot of crap. Clemenza and Tessio, completely misunderstanding, thinking that Sonny was laughing at his young brother's bravado for making such an offer, were also smiling broadly and a little patronizingly at Michael. Only Hagen warily kept his face impassive. Michael looked around at all of them, then stared at Sonny, who still couldn't stop laughing. You'll take both of them? Hey, kid, they won't give you medals. They put you in the electric chair, you know that? This is no hero business, kid. You don't shoot people from a mile away. You shoot when you see the whites of their eyes like we got taught in school, remember? You gotta stand right next to them and blow their heads off, and their brains get all over your nice Ivy League suit. How about that, kid? You wanna do that just because some dumb cop slapped you around? He was still laughing. Michael stood up. You better stop laughing. 
The change in him was so extraordinary that the smiles vanished from the faces of Clemenza and Tessio. Michael was not tall or heavily built, but his presence seemed to radiate danger. In that moment, he was a reincarnation of Don Corleone himself. His eyes had gone a pale tan, and his face was bleached of color. He seemed at any moment about to fling himself on his older and stronger brother. There was no doubt that if he had had a weapon in his hands, Sonny would have been in danger. Sonny stopped laughing, and Michael said to him in a cold, deadly voice, Don't you think I can do it, you son of a bitch? Sonny had got over his laughing fit. I know you can do it. I wasn't laughing at what you said. I was just laughing at how funny things turn out. I always said you were the toughest one in the family, tougher than Adon himself. You were the only one who could stand off the old man. I remember you when you were a kid. What a temper you had then. Hell, you even used to fight me, and I was a lot older than you. And Freddy had to beat the shit out of you at least once a week. And now Salazzo has you figured for the soft touch in the family because you let McCluskey hit you without fighting back, and you wouldn't get mixed up in a family fight. He figures he got nothing to worry about if he meets you head-to-head. -head. And McCluskey, too. He's got you figured for a yellow guinea. Sonny paused and then said softly, But you're a Corleone after all, you son of a bitch. And I was the only one who knew it. I've been sitting here waiting for the last three days, ever since the old man got shot waiting for you to crack out of that Ivy League war hero bullshit character you've been wearing. I've been waiting for you to become my right arm so we could kill those fucks that are trying to destroy our father and our family. And all it took was a sock on a jaw. How do you like that? Sonny made a comical gesture, a punch. How do you like that? The tension had relaxed in the room. Mike shook his head. Sonny, I'm doing it because it's the only thing to do. I can't give Salazzo another crack at the old man. I seem to be the only one who could get close enough to him, and I figured it out. I don't think you can get anybody else to knock off a police captain. Maybe you would do it, Sonny, but you have a wife and kids, and you have to run the family business until the old man is in shape. So that leaves me and Freddy. Freddy is in shock and out of action. Finally, that leaves just me. It's all logic. This sack on the jaw has nothing to do with it. Sonny came over and embraced him. I don't give a damn what your reasons are, just so long as you're with us now. And I'll tell you another thing. You're right all the way. Tom, what's your say? Hagen shrugged. The reasoning is solid. What makes it so is that I don't think the Turk is sincere about a deal. I think he'll still try to get at the Don. Anyway, on his past performance, that's how we have to figure him. So we try to get Solazzo. We get him even if we have to get the police captain. But whoever does the job is going to get an awful lot of heat. Does it have to be Mike? I could do it. Hagen shook his head impatiently. Salazzo wouldn't let you get within a mile of him if he had ten police captains. And besides, you're the acting head of the family. You can't be risked. Hagen paused and said to Clemenza and Tessio, Do either one of you have a top-button man, someone really special, who would take on this job? He wouldn't have to worry about money for the rest of his life. Clemenza spoke first. Nobody that Solozzo wouldn't know would catch on right away. He'd catch on if me or Tessio went too. What about somebody really tough who hasn't made his rep yet? A good rookie. Both Capo Regimes shook their heads. Tessio smiled to take the sting out of his words. That's like bringing a guy up from the minors to pitch a World Series. It has to be Mike. For a million different reasons. Most important, they got him down as faggy. And he can do the job. I guarantee that. 
And that's important, because this is the only shot we'll get at that sneaky bastard Turk. So now we have to figure out the best way to back him up. Tom, Clemenza, Tessio, find out where Salazzo will take him for the conference. I don't care how much it costs. When we find that out, we can figure out how we can get a weapon into his hands. Clemenza, I want you to get him a really safe gun out of your collection. The coldest one you got. Impossible to trace. Try to make it short barrel with a lot of blasting power. It doesn't have to be accurate. He'll be right on top of him when he uses it. Mike, as soon as you've used the gun, drop it on the floor. Don't be caught with it on you. Clemenza, tape the barrel in a trigger with that special stuff you got so he won't leave prints. Remember, Mike, we can square everything, witnesses and so forth. But if they catch you with the gun on you, we can't square that. We'll have transportation and protection, and then we'll make you disappear for a nice long vacation until the heat wears off. You'll be gone a long time, Mike, but I don't want you saying goodbye to your girlfriend or even calling her. After it's all over and you're out of the country, I'll send her word that you're okay. Those are orders. Now stick with Clemenza and get used to handling the gun he picks out for you. Maybe even practice a little. We'll take care of everything else. Everything. Okay, kid? Again, Michael Corleone felt that delicious, refreshing chilliness all over his body. You didn't have to give me that crap about not talking to my girlfriend about something like this. What the hell did you think I was going to do, call her up to say goodbye? Okay, but you're still a rookie, so I spell things out. Forget it. With a grin, Michael said. What the hell do you mean, a rookie? I listened to the old man just as hard as you did. How do you think I got so smart? They both laughed. Hagen poured drinks for everyone. He looked a little glum. The statesman forced to go to war. The lawyer forced to go to law. Well, anyway, now we know what we're going to do. Chapter 11 Captain Mark McCluskey sat in his office, fingering three envelopes bulging with betting slips. He was frowning and wishing he could decode the notations on the slips. It was very important that he do so. The envelopes were the betting slips that his raiding parties had picked up when they had hit one of the Corleone family bookmakers the night before. Now, the bookmaker would have to buy back the slips so that players couldn't claim winners and wipe him out. It was very important for Captain McCloskey to decode the slips because he didn't want to get cheated when he sold the slips back to the bookmaker. If there was 50 grand worth of action, then maybe he could sell it back for 5 grand. But if there were a lot of heavy bets and the slips represented 100 grand or maybe even 200 grand, then the price should be considerably higher. McCluskey fiddled with the envelope and then decided to let the bookie sweat a little bit and make the first offer. That might tip off what the real price should be. McCluskey looked at the station house clock on the wall of his office. It was time for him to pick up that greasy Turk, Salazzo, and take him to wherever he was going to meet the Corleone family. McCluskey went over to his wall locker and started to change into his civilian clothes. When he was finished, he called his wife and told her he would not be home for supper that night, that he would be out on the job. He never confided in his wife on anything. She thought they lived the way they did on his policeman's salary. McCluskey grunted with amusement. His mother had thought the same thing, but he had learned early. His father had shown him the ropes. His father had been a police sergeant, and every week father and son had walked through the precinct, and McCluskey Sr. had introduced his six-year-old son to the storekeepers, saying, and this is my little boy. The storekeepers would shake his hand and compliment him extravagantly and ring open their cash registers to give the little boy a gift of five or ten dollars. At the end of the day, little Mark McCluskey would have all the pockets of his suit stuffed with paper money. 
would feel so proud that his father's friends liked him well enough to give him a present every month they saw him. Of course, his father put the money in the bank for him, for his college education, and little Mark got at most a 50-cent piece for himself. Then, when Mark got home and his policeman uncles asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up and he would lisp childishly, a policeman, they would all laugh uproariously. And, of course, later on, though his father wanted him to go to college first, he went right from high school to studying for the police force. He had been a good cop, a brave cop. The tough young punks terrorizing street corners fled when he approached and finally vanished from his beat altogether. He was a very tough cop and a very fair one, he never took his son around to the storekeepers to collect his money presents for ignoring garbage violations and parking violations. He took the money directly into his own hand, direct because he felt he earned it. He never ducked into a movie house or goofed off into restaurants when he was on foot patrol, as some of the other cops did, especially on winter nights. He always made his rounds. He gave his stores a lot of protection, a lot of service. When winos and drunks filtered up from the Bowery to panhandle on his beat, he got rid of them so roughly that they never came back. The tradespeople in his precinct appreciated it, and they showed their appreciation. He also obeyed the system. The bookies in his precinct knew he would never make trouble to get an extra payoff for himself, that he was content for his share of the station house bag. His name was on the list with the others, and he never tried to make extras. He was a fair cop who took only clean graft, and his rise in the police department was steady, if not spectacular. During this time, he was raising a large family of four sons, none of whom became policemen. They all went to Fordham University, and since by that time Mark McCluskey was rising from sergeant to lieutenant and finally to captain, they lacked for nothing. It was at this time that McCluskey got the reputation for being a hard bargainer. The bookmakers in his district paid more protection money than the bookmakers in any other part of the city. But maybe that was because of the expense of putting four boys through college. McCluskey himself felt there was nothing wrong with clean graft. Why the hell should his kids go to CCNY or a cheap southern college just because the police department didn't pay its people enough money to live on and take care of their families properly with? He protected all these people with his life, and his record showed his citations for gun duels with stick-up men on his beat. Strong-arm protection guys would be pimps. He had hammered them into the ground. He had kept his little corner of the city safe for ordinary people, and he sure as hell was entitled to more than his lousy one C-note a week but he wasn't indignant about his low pay. He understood that everybody had to take care of themselves. Bruno Tattaglia was an old friend of his. Bruno had gone to Fordham with one of his sons, and then Bruno had opened his nightclub, and whenever the McCluskey family spent an infrequent night on the town, they could enjoy the cabaret with liquor and dinner on the house. On New Year's Eve, they received engraved invitations to be guests of the management and always received one of the best tables. Bruno always made sure they were introduced to the celebrities who performed in his club some of them famous singers and Hollywood stars. Of course, sometimes he asked a little favor, like getting an employee with a record cleared for a cabaret work license, usually a pretty girl with a police dossier as a hustler or roller. McCluskey would be glad to oblige. McCluskey made it a policy never to show that he understood what other people were up to. When Salazzo had approached him with a proposition to leave old man Corleone uncovered in the hospital, McCluskey didn't ask why. He asked price. When Salazzo said ten grand... McCluskey knew why. He didn't hesitate. Corleone was one of the biggest mafia men in the country with more political connections than Capone had ever had. Whoever knocked him off would be doing the country a big favor. McCluskey took the money in advance and did the job. When he received a call from Salazzo that there were still two of Corleone's men in front of the hospital, he had flown into a rage. He had locked up all of Tessio's men. 
he had pulled the detective guards off the door of Corleone's hospital room. And now, being a man of principle, he would have to give back the ten grand, money he had already earmarked to ensure the education of his grandchildren. It was in that rage that he had gone to the hospital and struck Michael Corleone. But it had all worked out for the best. He had met with Salazzo in the Tatalia nightclub, and they had made an even better deal. Again, McCluskey didn't ask questions, since he knew all the answers. He just made sure of his price. It never occurred to him that he himself could be in any danger, that anyone would consider, even for a moment, killing a New York City police captain was too fantastic. The toughest hood in the mafia had to stand still if the lowliest patrolman decided to slap him around. There was absolutely no percentage in killing cops, because then, all of a sudden, a lot of hoods were killed resisting arrest or escaping the scene of a crime, and who the hell was going to do anything about that? McCluskey sighed and got ready to leave the station house. Problems, always problems. His wife's sister in Ireland had just died after many years of fighting cancer, and that cancer had cost him a pretty penny. Now the funeral would cost him more. His own uncles and aunts in the old country needed a little help now and then to keep their potato farms, and he sent the money to do the trick. He didn't begrudge it, and when he and his wife visited the old country, they were treated like a king and queen. Maybe they would go again this summer, now that the war was over, and with all this extra money coming in. McCluskey told his patrolman clerk where he would be if he was needed. He did not feel it necessary to take any precautions. He could always claim Salazzo was an informer he was meeting. Outside the station house, he walked a few blocks and then caught a cab to the house where he would meet with Salazzo. It was Tom Hagen who had to make all the arrangements for Michael's leaving the country. His false passport, his seaman's card, his berth on an Italian freighter that would dock in a Sicilian port. Emissaries were sent that very day by plane to Sicily to prepare a hiding place with the mafia chief in the hill country. Sonny arranged for a car and an absolutely trustworthy driver to be waiting for Michael when he stepped out of the restaurant where the meeting would be held with Salazzo. The driver would be Tessio himself, who had volunteered for the job. It would be a beat-up-looking car, but with a fine motor. It would have phony license plates, and the car itself would be untraceable. It had been saved for a special job requiring the best. Michael spent the day with Clemenza, practicing with a small gun that would be gotten to him. It was a twenty-two filled with soft-nosed bullets that made pinpricks going in and left insulting, gaping holes when they exited from the human body. He found that it was accurate up to five of his steps away from a target. After that, the bullets might go anywhere. The trigger was tight, but Clemenza worked on this with some tools so that it pulled easier. They decided to leave it noisy. They didn't want an innocent bystander misunderstanding the situation and interfering out of ignorant courage. The report of the gun would keep them away from Michael. Clemenza kept instructing him during the training session. Drop the gun as soon as you finish using it. Just let your hand drop to your side and the gun slip out. Nobody will notice. Everybody will think you're still armed. They'll be staring at your face. Walk out of the place very quickly, but don't run. Don't look anybody directly in the eye, but don't look away from them either. Remember, they'll be scared of you. Believe me, they'll be scared of you. Nobody will interfere. As soon as you're outside, Tessio will be in the car waiting for you. Get in and leave the rest to him. Don't be worried about accidents. You'd be surprised how well his affairs go. Now, put this hat on and let's see how you look. He clapped a gray fedora on Michael's head. Michael, who never wore a hat, grimaced. Clemenza reassured him. It helps against identification, just in case. Mostly, it gives witnesses an excuse to change their identification when we make them see the light. Remember, Mike, don't worry about prints. The button trigger affixed with special tape. Don't touch any other part of the gun. Remember that. Has Sonny found out where Salazzo has taken me? 
Clemenza shrugged. Not yet. Salazzo's being very careful. But don't worry about him harming you. The negotiator stays in our hands until you come back safe. If anything happens to you, the negotiator pays. Why the hell should he stick his neck out? He gets a big fee, a small fortune. Also, he is an important man in the families. He knows Salazzo can't let anything happen to him. Your life is not worth the negotiator's life to Salazzo. Very simple. You'll be safe, all right. We're the ones who catch hell afterwards. How bad will it be? Very bad. It means an all-out war with the Tatalia family against the Corleone family. Most of the others will line up with the Tatalias. The sanitation department will be sweeping up a lot of dead bodies this winter. He shrugged. These things have to happen once every ten years or so. Gets rid of the bad blood. And then, if we let him push us around on the little things, they'll want to take over everything. You gotta stop them at the beginning. Like they should have stopped Hitler at Munich. They should never let him get away with that. They were just asking for big trouble when they let him get away with that. Michael had heard his father say the same thing before, only in 1939, before the war actually started. If the families had been running the State Department, there would never have been World War II, he thought with a grin. They drove back to the mall and to the Don's house, where Sonny still made his headquarters. Michael wondered how long Sonny could stay cooped up in the safe territory of the mall. Eventually, he would have to venture out. They found Sonny taking a nap on the couch. On the coffee table was the remains of his late lunch, scraps of steak and breadcrumbs, and a half-empty bottle of whiskey. His father's usually neat office was taking on the look of a badly kept furnished room. Michael shook his brother awake and said, Why don't you stop living like a bum and get this place cleaned up? Sonny yawned. What the hell are you, inspecting the barracks? Mike, we haven't got the word yet where they plan to take you, those bastards Salazzo and McCloskey. If we don't find that out... How the hell are we going to get that gun to you? Can I carry it on me? Maybe they won't frisk me. And even if they do, maybe they'll miss it if we're smart enough. And even if they find it, so what? They'll just take it off me and no harm done. Sonny shook his head. Nah, we have to make this a sure hit on that bastard Salazzo. Remember, get him first if you possibly can. McCluskey is slower and dumber. You should have plenty of time to take him. Did Clemenza tell you to be sure to drop the gun? A million times. Sonny got up from the sofa and stretched. How did your jaw feel, kid? Lousy. The left side of his face ached, except those parts that felt numb because of the drugged wire holding it together. He took the bottle of whiskey from the table and swigged directly from it. The pain eased. Easy, Mike. Now is no time to get slowed up by booze. Oh, Christ, Sonny, stop playing the big brother. I've been in combat against tougher guys in Salazzo and under worse conditions. Where the hell are his mortars? Has he, has he got air cover, heavy artillery, landmines? He's just a wise son of a bitch with a big-wheeled cop sidekick. Once anybody makes up their mind to kill him, there's no other problem. That's the hard part, making up your mind. They'll never know what hit them. Tom Hagen came into the room. He greeted them with a nod and went directly to the falsely listed telephone. He called a few times and then shook his head at Sonny. Not a whisper. Salazzo is keeping it to himself as long as he can. The phone rang. Sonny answered it, and he held up a hand as if to signal for quiet, though no one had spoken. He jotted some notes down on a pad, and then said, Okay, he'll be there, and hung up the phone. Sonny was laughing. That son of a bitch, Salazzo. He really is something. Here's the deal. At eight tonight, he and Captain McCluskey pick up Mike in front of Jack Dempsey's bar on Broadway. They go someplace to talk. And get this. Mike and Salazzo talk in Italian, so that the Irish cop don't know what the hell they are talking about. He even tells me, don't worry. He knows McCluskey doesn't know one word in Italian unless it's soldi. And he's checked you out, Mike. 
and knows you can understand Sicilian dialect. I'm pretty rusty, but we won't talk long. We don't let Mike go until we have the negotiator. Is that arranged? Clemenza nodded. The negotiator's at my house playing pinochle with three of my men. They wait for a call from me before they let him go. Sonny sank back in the leather armchair. Now how the hell do we find out the meeting place? Tom, we've got informers with the Tatalia family. How come they haven't given us the word? Hagen shrugged. Salazzo is really damn smart. He's playing this close to the vest, so close that he's not using any men as a cover. He figures the captain will be enough and that security is more important than guns. He's right, too. We'll have to put a tail on Mike and hope for the best. Sonny shook his head. Nah, anybody can lose a tail when they really want to. That's the first thing they'll check out. By this time, it was five in the afternoon. Sonny, with a worried look on his face, said, Maybe we should just let Mike blast whoever's in the car when it tries to pick him up. Hagen shook his head. What if Solazzo is not in the car? We've tipped our hand for nothing. Damn it, we have to find out where Solazzo is taking him. Clemenza put in... Maybe we should start trying to figure why he's making it such a big secret. Because it's a percentage. Why should he let us know anything if he can prevent it? Besides, he smells danger. He must be leery as hell, even with that police captain for his shadow. Hagen snapped his fingers. That detective, that guy Phillips. Why don't you give him a ring, Sonny? Maybe he can find out where the hell the captain can be reached. It's worth a try. McCluskey won't give a damn who knows where he's going. Sonny picked up the phone and dialed a number. He spoke softly into the phone, then hung up. He'll call us back. They waited for nearly another 30 minutes, and then the phone rang. It was Phillips. Sonny jotted something down on his pad and then hung up. His face was taut. I think we've got it. Captain McCluskey always has to leave word on where it can be reached. From 8 to 10 tonight, he'll be at the Luna Azur up in the Bronx. Anybody know it? I do. It's perfect for us. A small family place with big booths where people can talk in private. Good food. Everybody minds their own business. Perfect. He leaned over Sonny's desk and arranged stubbed-out cigarettes into map figures. This is the entrance. Mike, when you finish, just walk out and turn left, then turn the corner. I'll spot you and put on my headlights and catch you on the fly. If you have any trouble, yell, and I'll try to come in and get you out. Clemenza, you gotta work fast. Send somebody up there to plant the gun. They got an old-fashioned toilet with a space between the water container and the wall. Have your man tape the gun behind there. Mike... After they frisk you in the car and find you're clean, they won't be too worried about you. In the restaurant, wait a bit before you excuse yourself. No, better still, ask permission to go. Act a little in trouble first. Very natural. They can't figure anything. But when you come out again, don't waste any time. Don't sit down again at the table. Start blasting. And don't take chances. In the head, two shots apiece. And out as fast as your legs can travel. Sonny had been listening judiciously. He told Clemenza, I want somebody very good, very safe to plant that gun. I don't want my brother coming out of that toilet with just his dick in his hand. The gun will be there. Okay. Everybody get rolling. Tessio and Clemenza left. Tom Hagen said, Sonny, should I drive Mike down to New York? No, I want you here. When Mike finishes, then our work begins and I'll need you. Have you got those newspaper guys lined up? Hagen nodded. I'll be feeding them info as soon as things break. Sonny got up and came to stand in front of Michael. He shook his hand. Okay, kid, you're on. I'll square it with Mom you're not seeing her before you left. And I'll get a message to your girlfriend when I think the time is right, okay? Okay. How long do you think before I can come back? At least a year. The Don might be able to work faster than that, Mike, but don't count on it. The time element hinges on a lot of factors. How well we can plant stories with a newsman. How much the police department wants to cover up. 
how violently the other families react. There's going to be a hell of a lot of heat and trouble. That's the only thing we can be sure of. Michael shook Hagen's hand. Do your best. I don't want to do another three-year stretch away from home. It's not too late to back out, Mike. We can get somebody else. We can go back over our alternatives. Maybe it's not necessary to get rid of Salazzo. Michael laughed. We can talk ourselves into any viewpoint, but we figured it right the first time. I've been riding the gravy train all my life. About time I paid my dues. You shouldn't let that broken jaw influence you. McCluskey's a stupid man, and it was business, not personal. For the second time, he saw Michael Corleone's face freeze into a mask that resembled uncannily the Don's. Tom, don't let anybody kid you. It's all personal, every bit of business. Every piece of shit every man has to eat every day of his life is personal. They call it business, okay, but it's personal as hell. You know where I learned that from? The Don, my old man, the godfather. If a bolt of lightning hit a friend of his, the old man would take it personal. He took my going into the Marines personal. That's what makes him great. The great Don. He takes everything personal. Like God. He knows every feather that falls from the tail of a sparrow or however the hell it goes, right, huh? And you know something? Accidents don't happen to people who take accidents as a personal insult. So I came late. Okay, but I'm coming all the way. Damn right. I take that broken jaw personal. Damn right. I take Salazzo trying to kill my father personal. He laughed. Tell the old man I learned it all from him. And then I'm glad I had this chance to pay him back for all he did for me. He was a good father. He paused, and then he said thoughtfully to Hagen, You know, I can never remember him hitting me. Or Sonny, or Freddy. And of course, Connie, he wouldn't even yell at her. And tell me the truth, Tom. How many men do you figure the Don killed, or had killed? Tom Hagen turned away. I'll tell you one thing you didn't learn from him, talking the way you're talking now. There are things that have to be done, and you do them, and you never talk about them. You don't try to justify them. They can't be justified. You just do them. Then you forget it. Michael Corleone frowned. It's a conciliary. You agree that it's dangerous to the Don and our family to let Salazzo live? Yes. Okay. Then I have to kill him. Michael Corleone stood in front of Jack Dempsey's restaurant on Broadway and waited for his pickup. He looked at his watch. It said five minutes to eight. Salazzo was going to be punctual. Michael had made sure he was there in plenty of time. He'd been waiting 15 minutes. All during the ride from Long Beach into the city, he'd been trying to forget what he had said to Hagen. For if he believed what he had said then his life was set on an irrevocable course. And yet, could it be otherwise after tonight? He might be dead after tonight if he didn't stop all this crap, Michael thought grimly. He had to keep his mind on the business at hand. Salazzo was no dummy, and McCluskey was a very tough egg. He felt the ache in his wired jaw and welcomed the pain that would keep him alert. Broadway wasn't that crowded on this cold winter night, even though it was near theater time. Michael flinched as a long black car pulled up to the curb and the driver, leaning over, opened the front door and said, Get in, Mike. He didn't know the driver, a young punk with slick black hair and an open shirt, but he got in. In the back seat were Captain McCluskey and Salazzo. Salazzo reached a hand over the back of the seat, and Michael shook it. The hand was firm, warm, and dry. I'm glad you came, Mike. I hope we can straighten everything out. All this is terrible. It's not the way I wanted things to happen at all. It should never have happened. I hope we can settle things tonight. I don't want my father bothered anymore. He won't be. I swear to you by my children, he won't be. Just keep an open mind when we talk. I hope you're not a hothead like your brother, Sonny. 
It's impossible to talk business with him. Captain McCluskey grunted. He's a good kid. He's all right. He leaned over to give Michael an affectionate pat on the shoulder. I'm sorry about the other night, Mike. I'm getting too old for my job, too grouchy. I guess I'll have to retire pretty soon. Can't stand the aggravation. All day I get aggravation. You know how it is. Then, with a doleful sigh, he gave Michael a thorough frisk for a weapon. Michael saw a slight smile on the driver's lips. The car was going west with no apparent attempt to elude any trailers. It went up on the west side highway, speeding in and out of traffic. Anyone following would have had to do the same. Then, to Michael's dismay, it took the exit for the George Washington Bridge. They were going over to New Jersey. Whoever had given Sonny the info on where the meeting was to be held had given him the wrong dope. The car threaded through the bridge approaches and then was on it, leaving the blazing city behind. Michael kept his face impassive. Were they going to dump him into the swamps, or was it just a last-minute change in meeting place by the wily Salazzo? But when they were nearly all the way across, the driver gave the wheel a violent twist. The heavy automobile jumped into the air when it hit the divider and bounced over into the lanes going back to New York City. Both McCluskey and Salazzo were looking back to see if anyone had tried doing the same thing. The driver was really hitting it back to New York, and then they were off the bridge and going toward the East Bronx. They went through side streets with no cars behind them. By this time, it was nearly nine o'clock. They had made sure there was no one on their tail. Salazzo lit up a cigarette after offering his pack to McCluskey and Michael, both of whom refused. Salazzo said to the driver, Nice work. I'll remember it. Ten minutes later, the car pulled up in front of a restaurant in a small Italian neighborhood. There was no one on the streets, and because of the lateness of the hour, only a few people were still at dinner. Michael had been worried that the driver would come in with them, but he stayed outside with his car. The negotiator had not mentioned a driver. Nobody had. Technically, Salazzo had broken the agreement by bringing him along but Michael decided not to mention it, knowing they would think he would be afraid to mention it, afraid of ruining the chances for the success of the parley. The three of them sat at the only round table, Salazzo refusing a booth. There were only two other people in the restaurant. Michael wondered whether they were Salazzo plants, but it didn't matter. Before they could interfere, it would be all over. McCluskey asked with real interest, Is the Italian food good here? Salazzo reassured him, Try the veal. It's the finest in New York. The solitary waiter had brought a bottle of wine to the table and uncorked it. He poured three glasses full. Surprisingly, McCluskey did not drink. I must be the only Irishman who don't take the booze. I've seen too many good people get in trouble because of the booze. Salazzo said placatingly to the captain, I am going to talk Italian to Mike. Not because I don't trust you, but because I can't explain myself properly in English. And I want to convince Mike that I mean well. But it's to everybody's advantage for us to come to an agreement tonight. Don't be insulted by this. It's not that I don't trust you. Captain McCluskey gave them both an ironic grin. Sure. You two go right ahead. I'll concentrate on my veal and spaghetti. Salazzo began speaking to Michael in rapid Sicilian. You must understand that what happened between me and your father was strictly a business matter. I have a great respect for Don Corleone and would beg for the opportunity to enter his service. But you must understand that your father is an old-fashioned man. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.